Hi everyone, I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories and let you know how you can help bring them home. Now, when it comes to using the family to get for Russia to get what they want, if that's the case, they've picked the wrong family because I'm not going to carry water for the Russian authorities. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us. I never thought that my mother, Nahi Tagavi, will ever have a link to negotiations in Vienna about the JCPOA. That's so crazy. People who have never given up hope. Trevor told his girlfriend to tell me to, to be strong. So I'm trying to be strong for Trevor. You know, if, if Trevor can cope with what he's dealing with, exactly. we, we can sure cope with the stress. People who will never stop working to reunite their families. We'd like to meet with the president. Uh, we believe that, you know, he has, uh, he's surrounded by lots of uh, experienced and educated advisors, but I don't believe that any of them have ever had a, a child taken hostage by a foreign country, especially not a superpower like Russia. And we'll be right there by their side until their loved one comes back home. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. I'm Darren Nair, and I've been campaigning with many of these families for years. When I first started campaigning with these families, I noticed they struggled to get the media attention they needed. So I decided to create this podcast, which is a safe space for the families to speak as long as they need to about their loved ones and what needs to be done to bring them home. Nobody can prepare you for what our family is going through. Even if someone had told me one year before, in one year, this is going to happen, prepare yourself. It's impossible. Thank you for listening and welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. China is notorious for carrying out wrongful detentions of foreign nationals. The current US State Department's travel advisory for China states the following. The People's Republic of China government arbitrarily enforced local laws, including carrying out wrongful detentions and using exit bans on U.S. citizens and citizens of other countries without fair and transparent process under law. The current travel advice for China, published by the UK Foreign Office, states the following. China's authorities have under certain circumstances detained foreigners citing endangering national security. National security is interpreted broadly and you may be detained without having intended to break the law. There is also a risk of arbitrary detention, including of British nationals. Those were statements within the current US and UK travel advisories for China. Peter Humphrey is a British citizen, a former fraud investigator, and also a former journalist. Peter and his wife, who is an American citizen, co-founded the company ChinaWise, which is a risk advisory firm based in Shanghai. In August 2013, both Peter and his wife were arrested by Chinese authorities. They were both released almost two years later in June 2015. Peter was released before his sentence ended because of his poor health. After he returned to the UK, 
Peter was sadly diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. Denial of medical care by Chinese authorities during his imprisonment made his condition worse. Peter and his wife now live in the UK. Since his release, Peter has been mentoring the families with loved ones wrongfully imprisoned in China, including the son of American businessman Kai Lee from New York, who has been wrongfully imprisoned in China since September 2016. The US government has classified Kylie as being wrongfully detained, and the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention has stated that Kylie is arbitrarily detained and has called for his immediate release. We have interviewed Kylie's son, Harrison Lee, twice on this podcast, and you can listen to these episodes wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, pothostagediplomacy.com. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Peter Humphrey himself. Peter, we're so sorry for what you and your wife went through. We're glad you're now back in the UK. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast. You're very welcome. Um, Can you please give us some background on what you were doing in China and how you ended up getting arrested? I have a very long history of involvement with China. Um, First of all, I studied Chinese studies at University in Durham in, in the UK. Um, my degree was a degree in Sinology or Chinese studies, uh, which I completed in 1979. Um, so you can say that I've had about 47 years of involvement in China in several different kind of shapes and forms. Um, the first after, uh, um, after completing my degree was I went to China as a postgraduate student and ended up becoming a teacher by accident. Um, so the, the only government I've ever worked for was the Chinese government working as an English teacher. I did that for a couple of years. And, and then I, I really became a full-time journalist. Um, I had developed an interest in journalism as a freelancer during those first two years in China and um, ended up uh, first joining the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong for about one year. And then I joined Reuters International Journalist Training Program in London um, and became a full-fledged Reuters correspondent. So I was essentially, I was a a foreign correspondent for nearly two decades. Um, My work focused on not just on China, uh, but also on Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, and around 1998, uh, when I was based in Hong Kong in the Reuters Bureau um, as the Deputy Bureau Chief, uh, I resigned from Reuters and left journalism um, and went into the what we call the due diligence industry, which is essentially a consulting industry that provides due diligence services and fraud detection services and so forth. Um, And uh, I went to work for an American company called Kroll, which was one of the top companies in that field at the time. Uh, They're kind of known as the the fraud busters of of Wall Street. Um, And Kroll sent me to Beijing to uh, run their China business. I worked with them for three years, um, and then there were there were political uh, uh, squabbles in the region of our company, and I ended up leaving and going to work for. PwC doing similar work in, in a special department there. Um, and then uh, after two years there, I and my wife established a company called China Wise, uh, which basically means questions and answers about China. Um, and China Wise was unusual as a company because 
it was exclusively focused on fraud prevention for Western corporations inside China. We didn't have offices in any other countries. So we, we were specialists within a specialization. Um, this company went very well for 10 years until 2013. Um, we had representation in Shanghai, Beijing, and Hong Kong. Um, and we, we were a small company with a very big footprint, doing very well, making a good name for ourselves in the international business community. We did due diligence work, which helped companies to kind of peel the onion um, on counterparties, such as companies that they were planning to do a deal with or to sign up as a strategic uh, supplier or distributor, and also on individuals who were going to be senior new hires. Uh, we, would, we would profile companies and people to help our clients understand whether there were any skeletons in the cupboard, any risks that they needed to, to know about and to fix. We also did a tremendous amount of work investigating frauds inside our clients' business operations in China and uh, other issues like theft of technology and, and counterfeiting. Um, we dealt with a wide range of issues. We did some audit work as well. So this was a, a business that was very much in demand at the time, uh, especially by Western corporations who faced lots of compliance uh, requirements from their head offices. Um, and we were very valued uh, by uh, the business community and by our clients. And for 10 years, this all went very well until um, one client cheated us about the reasons why they were hiring us to, to do something and uh, uh, ended up sending us off on a fool's errand effectively to investigate one of their former directors who was actually a, a Chinese police uh, informer informing about bribery and things like that. Um, so, you know, in the end, you know, after telling businesses for 10 years, how to avoid stepping on the landmines in China. We stepped on one ourselves. Uh, and um, this led to a raid against uh, our office because the person who we had just investigated um, was connected to the police and found out about our investigation and came after us using all of her all of her friends uh, in the Shanghai police apparatus and government. Um, so our office was raided one morning when my wife and I were, were both there. Um, we had an office in Shanghai with about 15 staff in it, and we had our own sleeping quarters. Um, so if, if we were in, in Shanghai, we would be sleeping in the office, as it were, in the sleeping quarters. And at 7 a.m. one morning, they just they kicked the doors down, um, kicked them off the hinges, uh, just came pouring in. There were at least 30 um, officers coming in um, in civvies. Uh, they were in plain clothes. And uh, they separated me from my wife. I was, I was made to sit on the bed in the bedroom, and my wife was made to sit in our private office. And uh, um, nothing could have been more traumatic than, than that. I actually had the bedroom door kicked off its hinges into my face as I was trying to open it to see what was going on outside in the office. Um, so we were separated and, and uh, my wife and I were not, not able to really communicate properly and see each other properly again for 700 days after that. Um, and uh, after a short time, well, I say short, maybe two or three hours kept like that in the office, um, we, we were moved on. But during that two or three hours, 
I could see, you know, the, the whole open plan office was being ripped apart by these people. You know, they were going through filing cabinets, going through drawers. They switched on every single computer in the office, and, and there was an officer sitting at every terminal, you know, rust, rustling around inside the computer. Um, there was no forensic stuff going on. You know, at normal police in normal countries, first of all, they will they will do what they call a forensic image of a hard drive before they start poking around inside it. So when they're examining uh, it and looking for data, they're actually, they're actually normally, they would be looking at a copy of the hard drive and not at the original in order not to contaminate evidence. And, you know, contamination of evidence could become a challenge in the UK court or an American court. Um, but the Chinese were just going through this, you know, without any forensic considerations. And the same thing is true of what they did with desks, desk drawers, filing cabinets and so forth. So it, it, not, nothing was being bagged and tagged, you know, um, and stuck into plastic bags and things like that. So that made clear that um, they actually knew what they were looking for before they came in. They didn't really care about the quality of their touching and, and searching uh, of everything in the office. They simply were looking for something in particular. And during this period in, in, in that morning, I heard the name of the client company who had got us into trouble mentioned quite a number of times uh, by officers to each other. Um, you know, and, and there was a kind of eureka moment from time to time when one of them found a file related to that engagement. So there we were. And, and at the end of that period in the office in that morning, we were then let out. Um, by that time, our staff had all been arriving between nine and 10, and they were, they had all been, uh, parked around the conference table in our meeting room. And as we walked past the meeting room, we could see them all sitting there in a kind of forced silence. Um, one or two of them at least waved and smiled at us anxiously. Um, so we were taken out of this building, uh, office building. It's the 20, 22nd floor on a, on a high rise in Shanghai, in downtown Shanghai. We were taken out. And in separate lifts, we were taken down to the basement car park and put in separate police cars. Um, and then we were driven across Shanghai to a very notorious building, which is known as Building 803. It's actually the headquarters of the, of, of the criminal investigation police in, in China. And there we were taken down into a basement where... We were, we were walking along a long corridor and there are cells on each side. And one side is interrogation cells and the other side is, I think, document um, search cells where things related to ongoing interrogations are kept and where, where the police go and sit in between interrogations and so forth. So we were put into separate interrogation cells on that corridor and we were interrogated off and on uh, by several different officers um, until well after midnight, maybe closer to 1 a.m. Uh, that night. And then we were told, right, uh, our, our, our superiors have, have asked us to um, keep you for a few days, right? And so I had to sign a chip saying, okay, they've told me they're going to keep me for a few days. Then they took us by car. Uh, Shanghai was very dark by, by this time, took us by car car um, 
across the city um, into the suburbs of Pudong. And um, they took us to, uh, first of all, to a hospital called the Andar Hospital, which subsequently, I've learned, is related to the police. It's somehow controlled by them. It was a small hospital, and there we were put through some absolutely, you know, window dressing style medical checks. This was it was nonsense, you know. They they, they supposedly did an X ray. I doubt very much whether they really they really did. Um, they they took a blood test and so forth. A couple of other simple tests like that that they did check the heart. You know. um, I suppose they got a record then that you know we we were okay in our health and, and uh, we were okay enough to be arrested. Actually, as as we'll, we'll learn later, I, I wasn't. Um, and we, of course, we had, we had to pay for, the, for these checks as well. Um, and from there, you know, as I was getting into back into a police car, the, my, my police car, um, one of the officers said, "I'm very sorry, uh, Peter. I have to to do this." And he pulled out a pair of handcuffs um, and put me in handcuffs, and I, I felt deeply shocked and humiliated. Um, and uh, uh, he said to me, I'm sorry I have to do this. It's because of, and then he named the company, the client uh, who had got us into trouble. Um, and we were driven away again, and we ended up uh, going through a, a very small alley. The car was driving through an alley uh, in a rundown uh, suburb of Pudong. And we arrived at this fortress-like gates, which turned out after we got inside it, um, we realized it was a detention center. And there were um, paramilitary guards on the gates. And that is actually normal in all Chinese prisons, um, that uh, the perimeter is, is guarded by paramilitary troops, um, where, whereas the inside is, is managed by uh, a branch of the Justice Ministry, uh, which runs all you know, the services of warders and prison administration and so forth in the country. Um, and we were put through, and um, once we were inside, we were taken to something a bit like, you know, the, the, the equivalent of a check-in desk um, at a hotel, except, of course, it wasn't so pleasant. And, uh, you know, we were made to um, strip down to uh, basically T-shirt and and shorts level of, of uh, clothing. Um, we were examined again by a doctor belonging to the detention centre, and um, all of our personal belongings were taken away from us, um, supposedly recorded what, what had been taken away from us, and then we were made to do profile photos. Um, and that really was just so, so humiliating, um, especially for me to think of that happening to my wife. You know, my, my wife... Is an extremely respectable uh, Chinese woman. She she came from a highly respectable, prominent Chinese scientific family. Um, later became an American, and and uh, you know I was proud of her and her family. And to to, to think about her being subjected to this humiliation um, just broke my heart. Um, and uh, from there, we were then each of us taken away to a cell block. Later, we realized it was the same building for, for both of us, but different floors. Um, so my floor, I think it was the second floor, 
um, held male prisoners, and then on the on the fourth floor they had female prisoners. There were two or three floors for male and one floor for female. And so I was led to the second floor, and there was a duty warder of doing the night shift, and he made me strip completely naked, even did an anal check on me, and then he threw me a pair of very tatty, you know, prison boxer shorts um, and a T-shirt um, and this vest. Um, you see, when you see pictures of Chinese prisoners, you often see them uh, in orange sleeveless vests. That's actually the uniform of Chinese detention centers. Um, and for a new prisoner, for some reason, they always give give you a vest that's very old and it's got a, a V-shaped tear in the back of the neck um, that I had. And, and uh, so I was made to put this on. And then I was led down the corridor to a cell. And the warder opened the door, which was a, a wooden door, which is only really a surface door. And then behind this wooden surface door was the real door. It was, you know, iron barred door. Uh, and he opened that door, basically shoved me in, and uh, I found myself in the middle of uh, the most horrific uh, place I'd ever been in my life, which was, you know, a cell room. Um, basically, the floor, which was a rough wooden floor, was covered with um, strange pink quilts, and heads started popping out from under these quilts oh what's going on and then someone says oh it's a new prisoner um and one of the guys came across the cell from the far corner uh and, and pointed me to a spot next to the toilet area and said that's your spot and so i was supposed to to just lie down and, and go to sleep there of course i didn't go to sleep i was in a state of complete uh, despair uh by this point um, you know, I'd been quite brave throughout the day's interrogations. And I thought this was probably going to be, you know, it. You know, I would then be allowed to go and, and to find myself in the middle of this cell with about 12 people lying on the floor under pink quilts, uh, like sardines in a can was hor horrifying. And, you know, I, I, I remember just being sitting there in a daze and feeling catatonic. Um, and then at some point there was this awful horn which went off in the yard. It was it was a, a kind of revali, um, which was absolutely ghostly in its tone. And uh, this would happen every, every day um, at uh, the time that people were supposed to wake up and so forth. And... and uh, I just couldn't believe, you know, that the day and the night had gone already um, and I hadn't slept. And I had the sense later that I didn't sleep for about 40 days. I mean, I must have had some sleep, of course, but uh, it seemed to me uh, that I was always awake, always struggling um, for the next 40 days. So this was the beginning, you know, of something that I never really imagined could ever happen to me. You know, even though I knew many stories about people being disappeared in China, and of course I had seen a lot of crime from the side of an investigator because I had investigated a lot of white-collar crime inside my client operations. 
I had never imagined this happening to me because the, the nature of our business was um, a, a benevolent uh, role within the business community where we were, my son used to say, he was a little boy, he said, uh, Daddy catches bad guys. You know, that that's kind of what I was doing in my, in my work. I was catching bad guys and helping companies to get them out the door, or in some cases even uh, submit um, an evidence case file to, uh, to the police when a client wanted to get someone arrested. Never, never imagined that they would do this to me and to my wife. And it was both of us. It was both of us. So suddenly for our son, who was then 18, we both vanished. Both parents vanished. Um, I was asked uh, if I wanted to sign um, a request to be visited uh, by um, an officer from my consulate. And, and indeed, I signed it. Indeed, I wanted to be visit, visited. Um, and that's how it all began. And then over the next two or three days, it was a kind of limbo for a couple of days, not three, but a couple of days, um, where nothing much happened. I was just in a state of shock. Um, I was taken to visit the chief warder of my, my floor a couple of times. Um, I was given kit, some basic things, uh, to use, uh, uh, the day I arrived, such as a plastic wash bowl, um, and a bar of carbolic soap, um, a toothbrush. The, to the, tooth the toothbrushes in the detention center are only two inches long, right? Um, so they can't be used as, as weapons. It's very hard to use them. Um, so some of those basics uh, I was given. Uh, it's supposed to be like a welcome, uh, you know, a welcome package, right? You know, um, and uh, I didn't have any change of clothes with me uh, for those two days. One, one of the other prisoners gave me a pair of, pair of his underpants um, and the box of shorts that I was given by the warder when I arrived just split right across the crotch. They gave me another one, they split right across the crotch. These things were just so bad, badly made. Uh, um, and the quilt that I, had, I was given was filthy, uh, you know, and so on. Um, you probably are interested to know a little bit about what conditions were like in the cell and, and um, uh, uh, physically, materially, what it was like. Well, if you can imagine a room that has just 15 square metres, of which about 12 square metres is wooden floor, and the other bit is basically a hole in the floor toilet in the court in one corner, and a and a heavy old style sink, a big sink next to it, and a cold water tap, no hot running water, um, and then the door space. Uh, so this twelve square meters is where the prisoners actually are kind of living and doing everything. That number of detainees, um, twelve, you know, one one square meter each, almost. It's a it's amazing, you know, to think about having to sleep in that space, that number of people. So what they what they did was they had two detainees on night shift guard guard watch duty at each end of the cell, um, uh, watching over everyone else. But it wasn't just about 
guarding and, and calling for the guards if some somebody did something wrong. It was also about um, reducing the pressure on the sleeping space, the area of the floor. And these these guard guard shifts would be like two or three hours at a time and, and over the space of a, a week. And then the next week, there'd be some shift in which detainees were doing which duties. Some would be scrubbing the floor and some might be doing guarding and others might be set, passing the, the, the food in at mealtimes through the door. Um, so you, you've got a rough wooden floorboards. You can hear insects chirping underneath them during your sleep. Um, and, you know, the, the walls and the ceilings were, were sort of white, white plaster and it was all peeling off. Um, there was a light, lights in the ceiling kept on 24 seven, never switched off. Um, and so you have to do everything, you know, sit, stand, sleep, etc., on the floor, eat on the floor. Um, and eating, you know, consisted of, they would lay out several dish towels to form a, a line in the middle of the room. And the detainees would sit either side of this imaginary table, uh, cross-legged. And the food was served in, in bowls like doggy bowls. So when meals came, the, the meal trolley came to, to the door of the cell. Um, the meal delivery service was done by convicted prisoners. Um, and the food would be passed through some horizontal bars at the bottom of the door uh, to one or two of the detainees who had that duty. Uh, and then it would be passed along the line, this imaginary table line. So each each prisoner had, had a doggy bowl. And uh, the, the food content was absolutely appalling. Um, it was always very gritty, very dry rice. Um, and a stir fry of some sort, which was mostly the scraps of vegetables. You know, not if you, if you imagine um, a green vegetable of some sort, you'd probably end up with the stalks from the bottom of the vegetable rather than the good leaves and stuff like that. That's so when I say scraps, that's what I mean. Um, and very, you know, a little bit of meat sometimes. Um, and it was very poor in quality. Uh, it was usually cold and it had, it had got cold already. Um, and quite dirty. Uh, and so uh, we had a lot of problem with, with tummy upsets uh, in the cells, um, people always getting sick. Um, and th th life was highly regimented. You know, you, you um, there were certain times of the day when certain things happened. For example, uh, at, uh, uh, you, you would get up maybe 6.30, and the uh, first thing is you have to clean the cell. You have to fold up all the quilts in a certain military style and create a stack of them in a corner. Um, each prisoner also had a plastic storage box to keep various bits and pieces. I, I didn't have any bits and pieces immediately. Um, and then that would be covered with a tarpaulin. And, and then the floor had to be uh, mopped. It wasn't mopped with a mop on a stick. It was basically rags were used to um actually there were there were old dish towels were used to wipe the floor um and that would happen four or five times during the course of the day uh 
uh, and then there would be compulsory viewing of some propaganda on the television set. Uh, there would be a study session. By study, that meant you had to sit and watch and, and, and listen to lectures by, you know, some judges or people like that, you know, about crime and right and wrong and so forth. Again, kind of propaganda. Um, and there was a certain time in the morning when patrol doctors came by, came down the corridor and would stop at each cell's bars and ask if anyone needed anything. And this was very, very perfunctory. Um, basically, you know, they could offer you uh, an aspirin or one type of ointment for every imaginable skin disorder or complaint and so forth. Um, and if you raised any issues of anything more serious, um, they would say um, something like, talk to your warder, right? And you could go around in circles uh, with that kind of thing. Um uh, each meal was pretty similar except breakfast because breakfast came with some very horrible um uh pickle things like 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 pickled um pickled beets for example um came with the rice um and but lunch and and the third meal of the day were very similar and came early all of these things came early so you know the final meal of the day came around 4:30 or something like that and uh, bedtime was supposedly 9 or 9.30, depending on which season of the year it was. Um, and so after the evening meal, the, the detainees would get very hungry quite soon. And there was a shopping system uh, where every couple of weeks the, the detainees could um, order from a list uh, and could spend up to 200 renminbi per each order. And uh, that shopping offered things like biscuits, um, dried instant noodles, um, pickles in little sachets and, and, and so forth, and some de toiletries such as toothpaste, toothbrushes, underwear, various things like that. Um, uh, and uh, so in the evening, um, after all mandatory activities had finished for the day, uh, in the evening, um, the prisoners would would um, have instant noodles, and they would talk about, oh, what kind have you got? And what kind? Of, it, it, was so, so, it was so pathetic, so sad. Um, and because we had a we had a, a boiled water urn um, just outside the bars of the far end of the cell uh, on a ledge, and the tap pointing inwards. So we had a supply of boiled water which we could use to make hot drinks um and they used it to um to have instant noodles as well um life in the cell was difficult because there was no furniture you know there was absolutely no furniture so you got to sit on the floor if you want to sit um and for for older people or people with ailments it's quite difficult to have to get up and down from the floor so many times every day. Um, really quite difficult for some. Uh, and it tends to wreak havoc on your, on your joints, especially your lower joints, um, to have to sit on a floor, uh, all of the time. And there are certain periods of the day where you, you, you were supposed to sit in a formation. They had three or four rows of red dots marked on on the floor and uh, 
one dot represented one detainee. And so when we watched this compulsory uh, propaganda sessions, we had to sit on those red dots and the television was hanging from the ceiling. Um, and there was a lot of sitting like this going on, uh, required sitting. And I know that, you know, my, my wife developed serious problems with her, with her knee and hip joints as a result of, uh, that compulsory sitting. She was 60 that year when, when we were detained and I was 57. So we weren't, we weren't youngsters. Um, and the officers there, um, in the detention center, most of them were reasonably, reasonably, um, civilized. Um, there were some who were nasty and the chief warder on my floor was particularly nasty. And he was trying to, you know, he hoped to try and catch me out, you know, for, for breaking rules and, you know, violating discipline and so forth. They had rules, uh, stuck up on the wall that you're supposed to follow. Um, so I think it's very important to understand that all of these conditions in what was supposed to be a custody center or a detention center, detaining people who had not been convicted of any crime. Most of them hadn't even been tried. But all of those conditions represent a degree of harshness which shows that you're basically treated as a convict from day one, even though you're innocent. Um, and that, that thought has always stuck in my mind. You know, those are not the conditions you give to someone who might be guilty of a crime and who is being investigated. Those are conditions that you give to someone who you are punishing. So it's a punishment regime from day one. I was never held in solitary confinement. I managed to keep my nose clean to some extent. Um, uh, but solitary confinement did exist. And, you know, from time to time, I would hear... Um, a kerfuffle break out somewhere along the corridor in another cell and there'd be screaming and, and so forth. And someone was being dragged away. You know, it could have been because of fighting. Um, I remember one day also hearing someone screaming out in a most agonizing voice, um, the Chinese words, which mean I've been wronged. I have been wronged. And I heard another outburst one day where I will kill all of you. I will kill all of you. you know? So there's a lot of it, a lot of uh, emotional upheaval and people did get dragged out in chains uh, and, and sent to a solitary cell sometimes. But I, I managed to avoid that. Uh, it's important to remember that, you know, I'm, I'm only talking at the moment about, um, the conditions in the pretrial detention center. Um, I spent 13 months in the pretrial detention center and then another nine or 10, 10 months in uh, Qingpu prison, which is a prison in the suburbs of Shanghai. And uh, the, the conditions in Qingpu prison deserve a separate chapter of this conversation um, a bit later on. Um, but uh, I was uh, in those conditions, as I say, for 13 months until, um, until we were uh, transferred to a prison. Now, during this stay at the detention center, uh, for the first few months, and this would be applicable to my wife as well, um, for the first few months, uh, I was interrogated, I would say almost every day, not every day, but almost every day. Um, and then after that, with much less frequency. 
And these interrogations would go like this. Um, uh, I wouldn't know when they were coming, okay? Um, and uh, there was a warder whose job was solely to escort a prisoner from his cell to uh, uh, to an interrogation room or interrogation cell. And uh, that warder would bang on the on the bars of the, the door and call out a name. And then everyone in the cell would be very curious, you know, what's, what's happening to him? Is he going to see a lawyer? Is he going to see, um, his consul or is he being interrogated? Um, and, uh, this uh, warder would take me along. He would put handcuffs on me, um, uh, before I exited from the cell. And then he would escort me round a couple of corridors to a wing of the detention center, which was the interrogation block. And I would be taken into an interrogation cell. Um, and there would be several PSB police officers there. And inside this interrogation cell, there is a cage. So I was put into the cage and inside the cage, there is a locking seat. You know, it's like, it's like an iron chair. Sometimes, sometimes Chinese people call it the tiger chair. And so I was in handcuffs, was locked into a chair and that's inside a cage which is also locked. And there's a little podium where the three officers would sit behind this podium. Um, one of them would be typing uh, a record of the of the interrogation of sorts. Um, and the other two would be asking questions. So that's the kind of interrogation I was put through. Um, and uh, there was nothing very professional about this police work. Um, in my case, they were basically, uh, they started by asking me a lot of questions about my family and my background. And, and they asked the same things day after day after day. Um, and uh, they were clearly looking for any sign that in my background, there might be some kind of espionage background or something like that, which they could grab onto. Um, and they also you know, asked me a lot of questions about my business uh, and my activity in China. Um, a number of times they accused me of having done certain things such as like, you know, um, doing intelligence gathering on Xinjiang, for example, uh, when in fact all we had done was we had written a survey of the news about, about Xinjiang, uh, for our clients. Um, they, they asked me, you know, they, they accused me of, of being do, involved in being involved in intelligence work against North Korea at one point as well. Uh, and then they, they showed me an article uh, which supposedly I had written for some intelligence think tank in Washington. And I said, look, that's the wrong Peter Humphrey. I mean, I've, I know nothing about North Korea, but I do know that there are thousands of people called Peter Humphrey on this planet, just like there are thousands of people called Wong Dan. You know, um, so they tried a few things like that. Uh, which didn't work out. The main concentration, though, in the end, was they got copies of a lot of our reports for our clients. Most of them, their due diligence reports or, the, or their fraud investigation reports, and they were basically wanting to know where we obtained certain 
records and certain types of records, which here in our own country we would call public records. So, for example, the details of incorporation of a company are public records here. You know, the electoral roll is a public record here. Um, the ownership information of a property is a public record in the UK and in most other uh, open societies. Um, but they were trying to suggest that, that we had used information that was illegal to, to obtain, uh, and this was completely untrue. And in the end, you know, uh, they charged us um, in the end with a crime called illegally acquiring personal information. And, you know, this actually, none, none of the information that, that we gathered in our investigations was um, subject to that law because we didn't, we didn't obtain it illegally. We didn't obtain it through bribery. That law was intended basically to um uh convict people in chinese institutions who illegally sold information for a bribe um to someone and so the law was being misapplied in our case and actually a, a few months after our release in 2015 they amended the law to a point where it would have applied to us in 2013 you know, if that law had existed when we were arrested, but it didn't exist when we were arrested. Um, it, it existed after we were after we were released. So the, the interrogations were very draining. You know, I mean, you've got no counsel, no legal counsel. Um, of course, in in quite a number of of countries under the rule of law, that would be illegal. Um, you know, a prisoner does have the right to consult counsel, and even has the right for counsel to be present in a room with the policeman when there's an interrogation uh, going on. Um, none of that happened there. So, you know, the pressure on a, on a detainee is humongous. Um, it's basically what it is all about is, is pressure to confess. So the Chinese police do not rely on proper forensic police work. They rely on confessions and testimonies that have been obtained under duress. And many prisoners basically collapse, give in, and, and start confessing to things that they haven't done. Um, that's what this was all about. And this went on, as I say, you know, for many, many months. And then um, in the 13th month, we were put on trial. Uh, were put, we were put on trial. An important thing that happened before we got to the end of the detention phase was that we also went through twice, actually, uh, what is now very universally called forced confessions um, and false confessions. Uh, in the first instance, it happened um, uh, less than two months into our detention um, at a crucial moment for the police when they were about to, you know, to issue an indictment. And uh, this all was very bizarre, but it was also extremely traumatic for me. Um, because, and I, I have described this in writing in a number of places. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, one day my police interrogators came to see me and simply said, our bosses would like you to meet the media, GM80, meet the media. And so we had a discussion about what that meant. 
And I didn't realize how much international news pressure and noise there was outside because I, I hadn't, hadn't seen it, right? But after I got out, I realized that this was because there was a lot of international media coverage um, around the indictment, which um, was very favorable to us. Um, and very critical of them. Uh, and so they were doing counter-propaganda. That's what they hoped. But I didn't know that at the time. So when we discussed uh, what it meant to meet the media, they wanted um, me to meet a group of Chinese journalists and, and camera people. They wanted me to be filmed and all that. And, and uh, I said, no, no. I said, I don't mind, mind meeting two or three uh, scribes, you know, two or three writing journalists, but no pictures. Right? And so they went away. And then the that was on a Saturday morning, I think, when they came to see me, which was quite unusual in itself, being a Saturday. And on the Monday, um, around uh, 9 a.m., uh, suddenly one of the warders came to our cell door and threw a brand new uh, orange prison vest into the room said that's for peter so the dirty shabby one that i'd started with um could now be set aside and and i'd got this brand new uh orange vest and nobody really knew why and then 20 minutes after that um a bunch of warders came to the cell door again and said peter meet the media right right so i was taken out and Unfortunately, I had just been given a sedative about half an hour before this um, by the patrol doctor because I had so um, I was so agitated every day and, and couldn't get any sleep at night. And uh, they gave me a sedative, and this sedative made me very drowsy. So when I was being taken out of the cell door, I was drowsy, and they took me down uh, the corridor. Uh, they were filming it. Um, the, the, the detention centre officers were filming it as they escorted me down the corridor, and in fact, you know that that image is all over the media. Um, and then eventually, we turned a corner uh, into another corridor, and all of a sudden, I was ambushed by cameras, you know, still cameras and and film cameras. Uh, you know, they were. It was absolutely scary. And I was taken into um, one of the interrogation cells, which I'd never seen before. It was much larger than all the others, and it had a larger podium. And in that cell, um, there were uh, there were police officers in uniform for the first time, including my own investigation uh, officers. Um, they'd all put their uniforms on for this special occasion, you know. And uh, my chief interrogator was there with a clipboard. Uh, I was placed inside a cage. I've described what an interrogation cage was like. This one looked a lot newer, um, and it, it had shiny, thin steel bars on it, as opposed to rough old iron bars. Um, but So I was locked in a chair. I was in handcuffs, uh, and I was locked in a cage and surrounded by so-called journalists pointing their cameras in through the bars to film everything. And it was supposedly made to look, to look like an interview, like I was, you know, being interviewed. But you can see the bars. If you see the pictures that are on the media, you can see the vertical bars behind me. 
Um, and my chief interrogator was asking me questions from a clipboard, which he, you know, wanted me to answer in a certain way. And I wasn't really very cooperative. You know, they were trying to make me self-incriminate, self-incriminate myself and apologize, right? And I wasn't going to have any of that. But, you know, you're like a, a case animal. You, you, you want to, you want to get out of there, right? So, you know, how do you get out of there? You've got to somehow appear to cooperate in some way. So I was in a fog because of the drug. And I was also mentally trying to navigate between uh, two positions. You know, I wanted to somehow say something that would get me out of there. But at the same time, there was no way that I would incriminate myself um, with an offence which I had not committed. So my answers were all like ifs and buts and caveats, um, you know, concessive clauses and so forth in sentences. Um, and I never saw what they produced from that. I was never asked for my consent. In fact, they did this against my will. I had clearly expressed my will um, and uh, they did it nonetheless. And I learned the next day, which was a Tuesday, that it had been broadcast. I never saw the broadcast myself uh, until my release uh, in the second half of um, 2015. Um, they did a similar thing again. In fact, my consul, I must say, my consul came rushing to the detention center the next day too, after they'd seen the broadcast. They were very angry uh, with the Chinese authorities and they, they, there was an official protest, but, you know, they'd already done the damage and this was broadcast all around the world. And it caused tremendous damage to my family's banking arrangements and stuff like that. Um, it caused a lot of damage to us. Um, the second time they did something like this was uh, almost a year later. So this was in 2014, um, in July of 2014. This time they didn't put me in the cage. They didn't dare. Uh, and I agreed to talk to a group of media people in a more uh, relaxed setting. So they, they put us in the room where I was normally met uh, by my consular visitor uh, once a month. And the the uh, the interview was more relaxed, but the, the so-called journalists were still trying to, to get me to incriminate myself, uh, which I wouldn't do. Um, after our release, uh, in 2015, we tracked down the clips of these interviews and we were shocked to see what they had done with them. Um, and as a result of that, um, I eventually filed a complaint with the UK TV regulator, Ofcom, um, in 2018, um, because under UK broadcasting law, that kind of broadcast is illegal. And I, I filed several complaints uh, to Ofcom against Chinese television because it was broadcast in the UK, not just in China, and uh, I won. But going back into my cell experience, um, you know, all of these things add to the trauma and, and that experience of being subjected to what was supposed to be a confession inside a cage um, remains one of the most distressing and traumatic images in my memory, which I, I will never forget. Um, in detention, I was allowed consular visits, um, and uh, they began a week or so after uh, I was detained. Um, unfortunately, most of the time, 
the consular officers who visited uh, were very junior and had very little knowledge of China, uh, which is a great pity uh, because I really think that uh, governments should be sending properly qualified people in in whichever environment it is uh, to visit their citizens who are in detention or in prison. Um, and that clearly wasn't uh, the policy of the British government. And from my wife's experience, it also wasn't the policy of the US government um, to send properly credentialed people to visit the prisoners. But at least, you know, it was a kind of messenger and nanny service, I call it. And that means they brought messages. Um, sometimes they brought letters, uh, which they would read to us. After a few months, we were allowed to keep uh, uh, such letters. Um, they also brought uh, reading material. So friends of mine in the business community, and I have many of them, um, was, were collecting books and, and, and magazines and newspapers for us. Um, so we had a steady supply of reading material brought in by the consul. And uh, um, in the detention center period of our experience, they also could bring in clothes, so warm clothes for the winter and so forth, um, but not food, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but anyway, it was better to have those visits than none. Um, you know, most Chinese prisoners don't get anyone visiting them except for occasionally their lawyer and, and, and the police. Um, and speaking of lawyers, um, our experience with Chinese lawyers was terrible. Um, essentially, you know, Chinese lawyers have had to sign a pledge in order to hold a practicing license. They've had to sign a pledge to the Communist Party to uphold Communist Party policies and not to oppose uh, the Communist Party. And so, you know, it, it's just window dressing to have a lawyer in China. They charge Western level rates um, to foreigners, um, but uh, uh, they don't really provide any real defense service. They, they, if they try to really defend you hard in court, they would probably end up in jail themselves. Um, so this was a complete, you know, fiasco having lawyers. Um, yeah. I know you were interested in the whole question of uh, medical attention for prisoners in the Chinese system. Um, and uh, before my arrest, I had just undergone uh, a, a full physical examination um, by a normal civilian doctor in Beijing. And he had found a problem with my prostate. And uh, he was scheduling further investigation, tests and so forth uh, for me when I was arrested. And I tried to raise this again and again and again and again with my captors. Um, and they simply refused to do anything about it. You know, this went on, in, in fact, for almost the entire duration of our captivity. Um, you know, I, I kept raising this issue uh, and it was just ignored. I needed certain tests to be done. You know, I needed PSA blood tests. I needed um, scans. I needed a biopsy and so forth. They just didn't want to believe me that I needed it. And uh, so that was completely neglected 
um, during my captivity, I never received treatment uh, for my prostate. And in general, I saw many other detainees and prisoners who were treated in the same awful way when it came to genuine medical problems. Uh, in the detention centre, among my cellmates, you know, I had people who had diabetes, people who had high blood pressure. I had one cellmate who had just undergone a liver transplant just before he was arrested. Um, so there was a danger that his body could reject his liver if he didn't have the right medications and so forth. Um, and I, you know, I met another one who, uh, more than one, um, who, who had undergone heart surgery and had heart attacks and so forth. Uh, none of these detainees were receiving proper medical attention uh, during the time that I spent with them. Um, it was absolutely awful from that point of view. Um, and later on, when I moved to prison, it was a similar situation with medical care. And a number of prisoners developed cancer. Some of them died. Uh, and since I have been released, um, I've been monitoring anecdotally uh, through other released prisoners, um, getting updates from them. I know that several more uh, foreign prisoners have died from cancer while in prison. Um, and this is, in my view, entirely because the Chinese system deliberately withholds medical care. And uh, they, they, you know, they're not prepared to to spend whatever money is necessary to uh, give someone medical care. And in the end, when I left um, China's prison system, I did indeed have uh, prostate cancer, and I've been through two battles with it since my release. Uh, in the end, I had to have my prostate removed. Um, and I really put that down to um, the abuse which happens uh, from the Chinese uh, judicial and prison system, um, this abuse actually caused me um, to develop a malignancy when I'd arrived in their detention centre, possibly with just a benign tumour. Um, so this was a serious, serious piece of damage. Um, so, yeah. <sighs> so, Peter, I mean... Thank you for that very detailed step-by-step -step explanation. We're so sorry you and your wife had to go through this. Now, you talked a lot about what you went through and a bit about what your wife went through. Obviously, she was going through similar trauma. Uh, she was a US citizen as well. You're a British citizen. You were getting consular access. What was it like for her? And obviously, you mentioned at the beginning that you only got to see her perhaps 700 days later or something, or a very long time after you were arrested. Um, so can you just tell her what your interactions with her were like and what yeah. was the situation like for you, yeah. for your wife? Yeah. Um, yeah, my wife, uh, Ying, um, was uh, held in similar conditions to me. In some ways, um, the regime and regimentation in the women's block uh, of the detention centre and later in a women's prison was more severe than what I experienced, you know, because uh, um, I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe female prison warders are, are harder nuts than than, uh, than the male ones. I don't know. But it was much more strict. And she also had difficulties with access to proper medical attention. At one point, 
know, she had a swollen kidney and we, we were afraid that there might be kidney failure. Um, she's recovered from that now, but uh, it was very similar. And the two of us were not able to communicate with each other at all for almost half a year. Um, so in December, um, we were told that we could write to each other. And I was quite shocked, and the other the other cellmates in my cell were shocked as well. But my chief warder was a new guy. Um, he was nicer than the one who'd been there for the last five or six months. And he said, Peter, you can write to your old lady. Uh, so Ying and I started writing to each other just before Christmas of 2013. And I received my first letter from her after Christmas. Um, I guess it must have been the same for her. And we were told that we could not write about our case. We couldn't discuss our case. And these letters went through several layers of censorship. Um, and uh, the first layer is your chief warder on your floor. He reads it somehow. And uh, I learned later how, but anyway, he reads it somehow. And the second layer is um, the... Um, whatever body is is in charge of your case at a given time. So there's a police period, there's a prosecution period, and there's a judge period. And so whoever's in charge of your case gets to censor these letters as well. And then finally, when it arrives at the other end, you know, Ying's chief warder would read my letter as well before she would release it to, um, to Ying. So that's what would happen with these letters. And it often took like, it often took a month for a letter to get through these three levels of, of uh, review um, for a distance, which is probably only about 30 metres vertically and diagonally through the concrete, right? Um, so the, the, the staggering delays in this letter um, was annoying because I could write, four, you know, I could write four, let's say, before I got a reply back. Uh, which showed that she'd received the first one and, and perhaps replied to something in the first one. And it was frustrating because we couldn't discuss our case. On a few occasions where we dropped hints to each other about the case, uh, the prosecutor um, withheld the letter uh, and so forth. So that, that was really frustrating. We were not allowed any phone calls, by the way, um, in the detention centre either. So the only time that we saw each other during our captivity was on the day of the trial. Uh, and that was a very dramatic moment because the trial happened uh, in early August of 2014. And in April 2014, my wife's only close relative, her elder brother, um, who she loved very much, you know, he was a great mentor to her all, all her life. And uh, he lived in in, in uh, Maryland in the United States. And he had been fighting for us during our detention, you know, funding um, lawyers, um, helping to support our son, uh, who was just 18, um, and communicating with his wife with the consuls and so forth in the two countries and so on, and with the judicial and prison authorities and so forth. So they've been fighting hard for us. And he developed a fast-acting act, cancer under all this stress. 
uh, and the cancer spread into his internal organs. And in April 2014, he died. And at, at that time, um, our sister-in-law didn't want my wife Ying to know. And the authorities certainly didn't want her to know either because they were afraid it could jeopardize the, the, the sinister plans for us, right? So she died, and uh, I was asked through my consul by my sister-in-law not to tell Ying, you know, not to communicate this information to her in the letters that we exchanged, and I didn't. But then a week before the trial, in a session with the police officers, I asked whether Ying knew now about her brother's death, and they told me that she knew. And then when I arrived in the courthouse on the day of the trial, we, of course, were taken there separately. But there was a moment when I was being escorted one way and I saw Ying at the top of a set of stairs being escorted in a different direction, probably to a different holding cell um, by, by female uh, bailiffs. And uh, I called up the stairs. I called up to her... I mean, she actually, she said, good morning, Peter, first. And I called up to her and said, I'm sorry about your brother. <clears throat> and she exploded. What? What's happened to my brother? She didn't know. The police had lied to me. They had, she didn't know. And I believed that she knew. And so, you know, I triggered a, a meltdown, breakdown um, that morning in court. And when she arrived in the actual courtroom from the holding cell, she was in his, she was in a state of hysteria um, because of that. So you know, we were kind of destabilized deliberately um, at the beginning of this trial. I think we recovered a lot mentally. Uh, my wife performed very well in that courtroom. Um, there were bits of the trial where we were one of us would be taken out because we're not allowed to hear what our partner is saying. Um, but So that's the only day during our captivity when we met each other. For the remainder of those 700 days that we were held, um, we didn't meet each other again until our release. So sorry that that happened. That was obviously, the cruelty was on purpose, uh, as you said, to destabilize you. Um, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Uh, that's those are things you just don't forget, don't get past. Um, you've so you you had a son, uh, you have a son, and both his parents were taken. You've spoken about not being able to speak to your wife, and you haven't been able to speak, uh, get information from the outside world. So, were you able to communicate with your son at all throughout your entire detention period? Yeah, yeah, we did have some communication with our son um, during the detention centre period and during the subsequent prison period. Um, in the detention centre period, um, our son could communicate messages and receive messages through the consular visits. Um, but we were not allowed any phone calls. In the detention centre, they don't allow any phone calls. And a few days before our trial, I was very shocked that he was, I was taken to a consular meeting and he was there. 
because he'd been he'd been living in England and he had come back um, for the trial, and they they allowed him to visit uh, me for twenty minutes or half an hour. That was a very emotional moment. But during you know during this whole time, this ordeal, it was very difficult for him uh, because he was an only child. Um, we're not particularly close to uh, my relatives um, because we lived in China and he grew up in China. Uh, and uh, we had, fortunately, we had a very small flat in England, which we had been using since my mother's death, since, since her house was sold. We'd been using this little flat as a pied à terre where we would go whenever we visited England to visit relatives. And uh, so he took refuge there. Um, he tried to go to university. He, you know, he had a, a place uh, offered to him in two universities uh, to study engineering. And it, after the first month at UCL, he could, you know, he hadn't found a solution to paying the bills. He, he had no access to our bank accounts and our money. I mean, we had the funds. We, you know, we could have supported it. And I knew this was going to be a problem if he tried to go to university. And, and sure enough, he, he had to withdraw. Um, and then requested a deferred entry a year later into a different university. Um, so this was a grossly humiliating experience for him, very traumatizing. He doesn't talk about his feelings very much, um, but I'm convinced that one day um, this will probably rebound on the poor guy. Um, he, he needs to actually get it out of his system because he was orphaned. He was orphaned by this incident. Um, Fortunately, a lot of adult, good adult friends of ours, um, very accomplished individuals, um, rallied around and provided him with support in various ways. Um, and uh, that included trying to prop up uh, a, pro a property investment portfolio that we had uh, earned um, and, w and which had cash flow problems. And there were friends who rallied about around my son and helped him to put money into various um, mortgage accounts to make sure that this didn't collapse. Um, but it was very confusing for him. And uh, he was suddenly, you know, forced to become an adult overnight. Um, he was 18 and he had just finished um, his IB exams uh, at Dulwich College, Beijing. Um, he'd done reasonably well. And he'd got two offers from universities in the UK. And he had an internship in Hong Kong with a friend of mine who ran um, a cold chain supply business uh, to the restaurant industry. And he'd been in that internship for a week or so when we disappeared. Um, so the whole world just turned upside down, you know, for him. And uh, it was deeply humiliating for him when he attended our trial our kangaroo court trial, um, to leave the courtroom without his mum and dad. He thought he was going to bring us home. Um, and, uh, you know, it was totally devastating for him. And, but he, he had a lot of emotional support from other families who are our friends. Very important support from one British family who... Um, Whose, whose son is the same age and they'd been at school together for a period of time. And, and another lot of, a lot of support from a German family whose daughter had grown up with Harvey um, and others, um, too many to mention. But, you know, it was, it was hard. Um, and then the first year 
of university, which he started just after our trial, uh, once he knew how long we were going to be there. The first year of university was very difficult because he was too distracted by what was going on to us, happening to us. So he didn't do very well in that first year. But after our release, um, uh, he started to, to do better. Um, and, uh, yeah, he said, I guess we're a family again. And in some ways, um, after having been forced to be an adult for those two years, in some ways he went back to being a young boy again. Yeah. And he, 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 um, you could say he's, he's recovered and done well because since, since the ordeal, he has completed, um, a four year master's degree in mechanical engineering at Bristol University and, um, a one and a half year postgraduate, uh, master's degree in aerospace engineering. And he's now a defense engineer with a major aviation company. That's amazing. He's clearly very resilient and very smart. Um, so I'm glad, um, despite this thing that happened to him, he was able to overcome it and he's resilient. Um, so Peter, were you able to get access to a lawyer? And if so, were you able to speak to your lawyer privately? Um, was your lawyer able to do their job and give you an appropriate defense? And the reason I'm asking is I've spoken to former hostages and uh, former wrongful detainees. And what they told me was either they didn't get access to a lawyer or when they did, uh, they couldn't speak to them privately because there was always a security guard or someone in the room. So what was the situation like for you? And certainly um, I was never really able to fully leverage and utilize a defense lawyer throughout this whole ordeal. But uh, from the outset, um, when you were taken captive in this way for the first time um, and you're told, you know, you can get a lawyer, um, it's really window dressing in this Chinese system. And, you know, once you're locked up, which I was, you can't go out and hunt for a lawyer yourself. You either have to accept a state-appointed lawyer or somehow get your consulate um, to provide a list. And my consulate did provide a list of Chinese lawyers um, in Shanghai. Or you get your relatives, if you can get a message to them, to start looking for a lawyer for you. And I was I was aware that this would be, you know, a swamp full of crocodiles um, because Chinese lawyers – in order to have a practicing license, first of all, they have to be uh, a member of the Communist Party and they have to be signed up on a pledge which commits them to following Chinese Communist Party policies and rules and so forth. And so if a defense lawyer um, is too aggressive in defense, he may well get arrested himself. And as we know, in 2015 and 2016, hundreds of defense lawyers were actually arrested in China for defending people in rights cases. But in this case, my family, uh, particularly my, my, my Chinese brother-in-law and his wife in Maryland, worked hard to try and find an appropriate lawyer. There were other people among my friends and supporters who tried to recommend various lawyers as well. But in the end, um, my brother-in-law hired um, for my son and for us a well-known so-called, quote-unquote, Chinese defense lawyer called Zai Jian. 
um, who worked with a, a Chinese law firm, which is now part of Denton's. Uh, and uh, um, the first time he came to see me, I didn't know he was coming. I met him for the first time. I had no idea who he was. He introduced himself, um, and he was extremely pompous and arrogant. That's the first thing that struck me. He's the sort of person who doesn't have much time for you. Um, and I explained the case uh, a little bit and, and gave background and so forth, but he didn't have a lot of time. And I was, and, and then he ends up by saying, Oh, it's a small, a small matter. Everything will be all right. And he leaves. Now that was really annoying and very unsettling, that behavior. But secondly, um, you know, with regard to privacy, um, these meetings with lawyers are conducted in a, a wing of the detention center in Shanghai, which contained rooms or cells similar to the interrogation cells, very slightly differently constructed. Um, and in this, in this case, you're escorted to, um, the meeting cell, um, by the same officer warder who escorts you to interrogations. Um, so he escorted me there and inside the so-called meeting cell, uh, is again divided into two portions. Um, and the prisoner is, is set against the back of the room with, uh, basically iron bars separating him from the other portion of the room near the door where the lawyer comes in and sits. So I'm separated by bars and I am actually locked in a chair as well, a locking chair in, in my portion of this cell. And it's hard to lean forward to the very narrow counter at the bars to read or write or sign anything. Um, uh, the bars are vertical and they're probably a few inches apart. And, and so the lawyer can pass documents to you to read or you, you can pass to him if you have them. But prisoners are not allowed to take anything to these meetings. It took me quite a number of months before I persuaded one of my uh, warders to allow me to take some notes to help my memory <laughs> um, when I spoke to the lawyer. And then I worked out a, an arrangement where um, I could take a few sheets of notes with me on handwritten on note paper, pass them to the lawyer, and he would then pass them back, but he wasn't passing back my notes, he passed back something else. So he could take my notes away, some of which were messages to my son, and then he could fax them uh, to my son. Um, uh, but that initial message, sorry, that initial meeting with Jai Jian was, uh, was one of very, very few meetings that I ever had with him. Um, because after that, um, the few meetings that I had with defense lawyer, um, he sent along one of his juniors to, to stand in for him instead. And, uh, we really, I really could not get them to do things that I needed. And I couldn't get them to take seriously, uh, my defense arguments and so forth. It was extremely frustrating and, and worrying. Um, and eventually I, I demanded to hire what I call the secondary lawyer or the family lawyer, which was, I wanted them to give me a, another, cheaper, uh, more junior lawyer to come and see me more often because the defense lawyers only came like once or twice, um, before indictment. And that was just insufficient. You know, that was nearly a year. Um, but I got the secondary lawyer to come and use them as a messenger. 
So over time, I managed to get more and more information and messages out to my son and to my brother-in-law about the background to what you know what what we had um, suffered. Um, the background being our involvement with a, with a client who got us into trouble, um, and that led um, almost a year later in my son managing to get the story out to the media. But the whole experience with lawyers was frustrating. And on the day of the trial, it was just a tremendous disappointment. Um, All the money that had been spent was completely wasted. Um, You probably want to know about the trial. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But just before we go to the trial, um, can I just ask about your wife? Was this uh, pompous an arrogant lawyer, uh, also your wife's lawyer as well? In China, they don't allow uh, co-defendants or accomplices in a case to have the same lawyer, same defence lawyer, which seems a bit uh, strange to me. Um, um, So each co-defendant has to have a a different lawyer, Um, but it is allowed to hire those different lawyers from the same law firm. So, So my wife was represented by... Um, another uh, lawyer from Jai Jian's firm um, and went through very similar experiences with him that I went through with Jai Jian. So it was, it was also very frustrating for her. One advantage she had, though, was that, you know, she could um, communicate more effectively in Chinese than me. Um, so she did not need... Um, I had this junior lawyer as my secondary lawyer who could speak a little bit of English. But my wife was fully, you know, fully conversant and, and literate in Chinese as a native, whereas I was a foreigner uh, communicating in Chinese. And so she had the advantage that she could communicate a lot more in technical terms related to our business and so forth. And she probably did a more effective job than I did in making arguments um, to her defence lawyer, whereas I did a more effective job getting the message out to the outside world. Well, that's good. Um, so uh, what was the trial itself like? Uh, because you just said that, well, uh, you this was a waste of money, so I'm, I take it the lawyer didn't do much for you? Or was it because the lawyer wasn't allowed to do much for you? I think when you talk about any trial in China, um, it's it's important to start by talking about uh, the system a little bit because, you know, there is no such thing as a fair and transparent trial in China. Um, There's no due process in the sense that that we know it. Um, um, And there's really no opportunity to orchestrate a proper defence. So you might as well be defenceless. And this is because all of the organs um, of uh, the law and order and and justice in China, all of them are very close with each other. They're not separated. So you take the police, you take the prosecution, you take the judiciary, in other words, the judges, and um, you take the body that sits above all of this, um, which is a thing called the Political and Legal Affairs Commission, which has a ministerial equivalent of itself up in Beijing um, and has a representative sitting on the Politburo. All of these organs of the system are all from the same family, and that family is called the Chinese Communist Party. So there's absolutely no chance that you're going to have 
an impartial judge or an independent judge um, who is part of an independent judiciary sitting and judging you. What you've got is the police in cahoots with the prosecution and in cahoots with the judges as well and in cahoots with other elements of supervising government. So basically, the judge is just a messenger who hands down a verdict which has already been decided by a higher level committee. And so therefore, every trial in China is simply um, a show, a display of window dressing. So we were, you know, indicted finally um, 10 or 11 months after our detention. And we went to trial on the 8th of August of 2014. Um, there had been one or two delays and postponements before that, but the 8th of August was the day. And I've already described uh, in these interviews uh, what happened when I met my wife um, in the courthouse. I had been told by the police that my wife knew that her brother had died a few months earlier, and they had lied to me. And when I saw my wife, I expressed condolences to her, and she completely freaked out and went ballistic because they hadn't told her at all, and she didn't know. So she was completely destabilized before the trial began. Um, this was a tremendous shock uh, to both of us, but obviously most of all to her. Um, and after all, uh, the loss of her brother was the greatest loss of all coming out of our family's uh, ordeal uh, those two years. So the trial is very much a set piece, you know, it's highly orchestrated. Um, there is a kind of separation down the middle across a, a sort of oblong room, uh, which separates um, spectators, if I may call them that, from the actual part participants in the trial. Um, the spectators consist of invited people, and the authorities did not allow um, uh, friends, for example, to come along. There were many friends who wanted to come. They only allowed a couple of relatives uh, from each side. Um, so our son was there, um, together with two representatives from our UK consulate, and Two of my wife's cousins were in, in, in the gallery as well. Um, and that was it from the terms of, you know, family or, or friends or, 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 and so forth. Plus the diplomats. There was an American diplomat there as well. I just remembered. Um, that was it. And in, in the part of the courtroom where all of the action takes place, um, you know, there is a barrier separating it from the spectators. Um, and that's where we were, and the judges were, and the prosecutor were, uh, and the team were, and, and the um, defence lawyers, so-called, were. I have no idea who the other spectators were, but the courtroom was full. Um, I know that some of them were Chinese media, and I know that all Western media or international media were excluded uh, and uh, could only uh, watch um, partial proceedings through uh, monitor screens placed outside of the courtroom somewhere else in the building. Um, within the main part of the courtroom, the judge sat at the, the far end on a tribunal um, facing me and my wife, and the judge um, had two assistant judges with him on this tribunal. Um, and in front of them, they had a, a court clerk uh, supposedly taking the transcript of proceedings. 
And as I faced the judge, to my left uh, was a bench along the side wall where the prosecution team sat. Uh, the prosecutor was a woman who had not had any university education. All her education was obtained from the People's Liberation Army, and then she'd gone into civilian life and become a prosecutor. And she had two assistant prosecutors with her. Um, and on opposite them, on the other side, in other words, the right-hand side of the way I was facing, was a bench for um, defence lawyers. And there were three, uh, the one representing me, one representing my wife, and an additional one who was, in theory, representing me as well, who had different arguments to make uh, other than the lead uh, defence counsel. So those are the players. And um, my wife was sitting to the right of me, um, a couple of metres apart from me. We were in individual chairs, um, and she had actually run away from her escorts when she entered the courtroom at the door. She'd run in screaming about her brother being dead and just ran, ran to her, her seat without, and they were trying to catch up with her. The proceedings of the day, you know, they began with a lot of preamble and, and, and BS for, from, from the judge introducing the case. We were judged already because, um, Many of his remarks in his opening, you know, introductory preamble effectively condemned us already. Um, so that there was not going to be a process of arguments for and against or, 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 or a proper judgment. It was clear. Um, and, um, you know, we each had to stand in turn and, and, and it was a very solemn and, and frightening kind of thing because there were armed guards either side of us when we were doing this. And the prosecutor, presented the general case, um, and then there were question and answering sessions. And whenever I was being questioned, my wife was taken out of the courtroom and put into a holding cell somewhere. And whenever she was being questioned, I was taken out and put in a holding cell. So we, we weren't supposed to know what each other was saying in the courtroom. Um, and after all that, there was more, arg there was arguing between the two sides of the courtroom. So the prosecution said a lot more and presented, showed a lot of evidence boxes that it had, boxes of reports written by my company, ChinaWise, for its clients, which really had nothing to do with anything. Um, and um, the defence counsels did make some arguments and did ask us some questions, um, but there were no witnesses. Uh, there was no opportunity allowed for the defence to bring witnesses to the court and there was no opportunity for the defence counsel to, let's say, cross-examine any of the witnesses quoted in the prosecution's indictment and evidence uh, summary. Um, and, you know, we were asked to uh, acknowledge that we'd seen the evidence that they brought in but there were boxes and boxes and boxes of things which weren't opened, you know, and we had no idea what was in there. Uh, we were just forced to sign. Um, and so this kind of went on in several rounds for the whole of the day and well into the evening. And uh, towards the end of the evening, um, I think Jung and I both were thinking the same way. This is ridiculous. It's not, you know, it's not going to go anywhere in our favour. 
let's just bring this whole thing to a close, you know. Um, and so we 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 were the, the judge was talking about maybe adjourning to another session at a future future day, and we said no, no let's let's just finish this today. Um, and the court adjourned, and within twenty minutes he came back with a judgment. Um, and it was very clear that this judgment wasn't much different from his opening statement at the beginning of the day. So is this justice? I don't think so. I mean, our defence counsel didn't present any strong arguments uh, to, to defend us and were not given an opportunity to introduce any witnesses to support us or to cross-examine the, the witnesses quoted by the prosecution, i.e. the police. Um, so it was a complete fiasco. And... Uh, um, I was very much aware of the fact that our son, Harvey, naively was thinking we were going to be released that day, probably just be sentenced on time already served, and he would take us home. But actually, at the end of it, um, I was sentenced to two and a half years, and my wife to two years, um, plus fines, and in my case, plus, plus deportation after serving time, and a 10-year entry ban uh, to China. Um, so this came as a great shock to us. I mean, to some extent, we hoped and thought that we might just be given time served and let off with a snap on the wrist. Um, uh, but it, it came as a big shock. And uh, it certainly um, came as a big shock to the wider public that supported us. And that is reflected in the media coverage of that time. Uh, almost every international news report on this event uh, was supportive, um, not always a hundred percent accurate in every detail, but supportive. And you know, some of them made clear that we had fought in the courtroom, that we had never accepted the charges, that we did not confess or plead guilty. But there were one or two Chinese uh, publications that made it look as though we had pleaded guilty, which was complete nonsense. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that, Peter. Um, I guess it's no surprise that the trial was unfair, but I'm still sorry that happened. What did you do next? Oh, what happened next was um, another shock for us, really. Uh, at the end of the trial, when the judge left the room, um, there were very few spectators left. They'd all kind of shuffled out very quickly after the reading of the judgment, um, except for my son and my cousins-in-law. Um, and then they, they left, and we were both quite shocked, um, both I and Ying, that our son was not allowed to come and just say goodbye or give us a hug or something like that, and nor were I and Ying allowed to say goodbye to each other and give each other a hug. Um, we were just whisked away separately, placed in cars, and driven back to the detention centre. And... Uh, when we got back to the detention centre, um, they had a, a doctor there who took my blood pressure, and it was absolutely through the roof. You know, and I'm I'm not somebody who normally has high blood pressure, even now at the age of sixty six. Um, but it was absolutely through through the roof. Um, and uh, one of the detention centre officers sat with me for nearly an hour talking just you know until i kind of lowered down a bit the, the, the body stress and the angst um and then when i went back to my cell um 
all my cellmates were shocked as well. They had all been convinced that this was a small matter because nobody charged with illegally acquiring personal information in the past had ever received that that higher sentence for it. And most of the cases were about people stealing millions of persons' identities from databases and so forth. So it was really a big outlier. Um, and uh, even scholars of, of Chinese law uh, at universities in the West have declared it to be an outlier. It was more a question of selective prostitute, prosecution. Um, and uh, so... You know, I was in that state of shock for several days. Um, and I presume that, you know, my wife must have been going through a terrible turmoil as well, because not only has she received all that, um, news, she'd also learned that her brother was dead on top of all of that. Um, so in my cell, you know, some of the cellmates comforted me and there was a lot of post-morteming going on between the cellmates over the coming few days. I wasn't immediately moved to a new cell. Um, because after a trial and a conviction, a lot of uh, prisoners are actually moved to what they call a transit cell before going to prison. And uh, in my case, you know, um, I didn't say, I didn't uh, plead guilty, and I didn't say whether I was going to appeal. And I was allowed allowed ten working days um, to decide whether to appeal. So I just left it hanging there and kept them guessing. Um, but I, there was some communication of small messages between the officers, uh, between me and Ying and so forth. Um, and Ying was saying that she, she wouldn't appeal. And because of the length of sentence um, and um, the illnesses that my wife had, not just me, because she had a kidney problem, she had a swollen kidney, um, and in considering that and considering the fact that if you appeal, the appeal could last another year or two, you know. So you could finish your sentence even before the appeal has has gone through its process in the Chinese way. And, and you know, just as 99.9% of prosecutions never fail, you know, there's always a conviction. Also, by the same spirit, 99.9% um, of appeals always fail. So um, uh, we... You know, clearly we're not going to appeal, uh, but I left it until the last of those 10 days before I said we're not going to appeal. Uh, and, and then um, I was moved then to what I call a transit cell, which is a cell with other convicted persons in it. Um, some of them were awaiting for the outcome of appeals of co-defendants in the same cases uh, who had appealed. So this was like a holding uh, cell. And the regimentation of that cell was very relaxed. Um, and the, the, the cell leader, the prisoner who was the cell leader, um, wasn't bossing everyone around. It was like everyone was chilling out um, while waiting to go to prison. Um, and uh, I was in there for um, almost a month um, uh, before uh, I was finally moved. And uh, I met one or two interesting prisoners in that cell, um, one or two of whom I've written about since my release. Um, but then after almost a month, I was transferred to, to Chengpu Prison and um, a completely kind of different um, uh, regime was in play there inside Chengpu Prison. 
Um, Chen Pu Prison was uh, a real prison, um, and it served two purposes. One was to train new convicts for distribution to prisons in other places in China, um, and the other was to function as a normal uh, custodial prison. And it also had an interesting uh, aspect to it, was that it was the only prison in Shanghai, and there are actually many prisons in Shanghai, but this was the only prison in Shanghai which had um, a, a cell block exclusively used by foreign prisoners. I'm talking about men, because Qingpu is a, a, man, a men's only, only prison. Um, and so I was in a cell block of um, about 150 foreign prisoners there, uh, whereas my wife in Shanghai Women's Prison um, was actually embedded in a normal Chinese prison population. And she was a foreigner, if you like, but she was also... Um, she was not in a cell room with 12 other foreigners. Uh, she was in a cell room with um, 11 Chinese citizens, basically, let's say, or, or even 15. I can't remember. I think she had more than that, more, more, more cellmates than I did. Um, and so a whole new regime began. And, you know, I was thinking at the time, you know, that um, we had tried hard. I, I had we had tried hard to fight in the court, and I had also tried hard to mobilize support on the outside. I had tried to mobilize, if you like, a campaign of support on the outside. Um, and you know, there were um, perhaps a dozen uh, solid friends, um, family friends, business friends, Rotary Club friends, and so forth, who were active. At the beginning, trying to find lawyers for us, and eventually some of them became active uh, with the media. Um, but, you know, despite uh, a massive crescendo of supportive international press coverage um, in late June, early July of 2014, you know, it, that did not seem to deter uh, the Chinese Communist Party's um, legal and judicial goons um, from inflicting this gross injustice upon us at the trial. Um, so campaign, as we may have done, um, uh, and of course, thanks to all the people who did try for us, um, but campaign, as we may have done, um, we were campaigning towards deaf ears and cold hearts. So I ended up in Qingpu Prison, where a whole new experience uh, awaited me. Uh, Qingpu is in the suburbs of uh, the far-flung suburbs in western Shanghai, um, and it's built like a fortress. Uh, the fortress walls around it, which they're a very long perimeter, are guarded by paramilitary troops who patrol along the top of the wall. They're armed with machine guns. Um, they have watchtowers. Um, and within the outer perimeter, there's a there's another perimeter, an inner perimeter. So you've got like administrative offices and so forth between the two perimeter walls. Um, and inside the second perimeter, you've got the real prison cell blocks um, and a huge sports field um, in the center of everything, shaped like an oval. Uh, and on one side, far side of the prison, there is a factory, which is part of the prison 
where Chinese prisoners are forced to labor on manufacturing um, tasks. And uh, every prisoner wears um, the prison uniform, which is like a, almost like a gray and a gray and brown mottled um, like a camouflage suit almost. Um, and when I arrived uh, in Qingpu prison, I was put through the same kind of body searches that I'd been through before. The officers who had accompanied me from uh, the detention center uh, were there briefly handing over medical records, which I had never seen myself, um, and handing over the remainder of the money I had in my detention center account and so forth. And um, I was put through the body search, and then I was taken to cell block eight, which was the foreign uh, prisoners brigade in, in Qingpu prison. And uh, um, there, my bags were taken into the front hall of the building, very gray drab thing. These, these buildings um, are all sort of gray and off-white. Uh, there are no colors in, inside these buildings. Um, and all the things in my bags, which I brought from the detention center, which ranged from personal, which ranged from personal clothing to toiletries to uh, books to collections of letters that I had received and, and so forth, personal photos, family photos, um, bedding, and, and all, all the stuff I'd had there in the cell in the detention center was all tossed out from the bags. And the warders quickly went through it, just kicking stuff to one side or to that side. And the stuff, the majority of the stuff was rebagged and taken away from me and put into um, uh, some storage room somewhere. And a, a relatively small amount of stuff was left with me. And uh, I was then taken to a cell uh, where there were two minders. They were prisoners, but they, they were evidently appointed to be my watchers. Uh, they were waiting for me in this cell. Um, the cell room was... Uh, on the second floor, and um, the structure of the cell block was such that you, you had the cells are in the middle of the building, uh, and on one side of the cells there's a corridor, bars on the outer windows, and the door of the cell is a barred uh, iron door, um, and then on the far end of the cell you have barred windows again. Uh, the glass uh, the glass windows outside of the bars are, are pretty much never never closed, so. In the summer, the heat comes in with the mosquitoes, and the, in the winter, um, whatever heat there might be escapes, and the cold comes in. Um, and it's concrete, so it's very, very cold. It's, it's, it's colder in there than it is outdoors in the, in the winter. There's no heating and there's no air conditioning. Um, and unlike the detention center, you had bunk beds, which was at least a slight improvement in the accommodation. Um, there were rusty iron bunk beds, um, two two layers of uh, three on each wall. Um, so that meant six bunks on each side of the cell. A tiny, tiny table at the end by the window with a television on it um, with, with restricted programming. Um, and the toilet arrangement was similar to the uh, detention center. It was one corner by the door was a, a hole in the ground toilet and the other corner opposite it was uh, a heavy old sink with cold water. Um, and everything in the cell was either grey or off-white. Uh, and uh, I was issued with um, standard bedroll. This was very military. And, and one of the things that 
they, they do with you when you arrive is you have to train how to pro- properly fold your your blanket or your, or your quilt. It's a very thin quilt um, uh, in a military way, according to the People's Liberation Army method in the barracks and so forth. And it, it has to be folded that way properly. And every day when you get up, it must be folded that way and, and, and pillow put on top of it. And uh, if it's if, if it's an inch out of uh, place, then you can be punished by minus merit points um, as opposed to earning merit points to get a reduction. They can punish you with with uh, demerit points, things like that. Um, and there was a cell leader, a prisoner who was a Nigerian gangster um, who was particularly nasty. Uh, my, that cell, my cell, was the training cell for the newcomers. And he was the guy who had to train them, whip them in shape to please the officers. Um, and uh, um, the daily routine was was uh, people getting up uh, around six, six or six thirty, but one or two had to get up earlier to perform some some duties, mopping the floor. And cleaning around the toilet and, and, and wash area um, before the first roll call, um, and then a roll call would come when you know an officer would come around seven a.m. and bang on the the, the door, and uh, everyone would have to stand to attention in front of their their bunk in a specific lineup order, um, and the roll would be called, and then the gate would be unlocked, um, the door, uh, and we would then be able to enter the corridor uh, and everyone was allocated a large thermos flask um, and we had to, they, they were pink. <laughs> I don't know why they were pink. And we could then go downstairs to the yard to fill the thermos flasks with boiled water from a tank that was brought along on a hand-pulled cart. Um, and that water was the only hot water we got. Um, we could use it for making a hot drink, um, or even for washing our faces if we wanted to. Um, but that's not a lot of hot water. Um, and after that, we would go to breakfast and in our cell block, um, we generally ate in a kind of, uh, it was called the activity room. So meals were served in that room and, um, meetings were held in that room and, uh, manufacturing labor took place in that room for certain periods of the day were allocated to, to these things. And breakfast consisted of, uh, either a dollop of, uh, of steamed rice or a manto, which is a Chinese, um, bun made from wheat flour, uh, a plain bun. Essentially it's steamed bread, um, and a little bit of pickles, um, and, uh, on, Sundays, we would give them one boiled egg. Um, that, that was about the limit of breakfast, uh, a Sunday egg. Um, and lunch and dinner, again, like, like the detention centre, were very early by our standards. Um, so lunch could be like 11.30 um, or, or 12 at the latest. But, um, and, and dinner would come around 4, 4.30. Uh, and... Um, Bedtime was around nine nine thirty. The doors of the cells would be closed at nine. These the evening meal and the, and the midday meal 
were better than the detention sensor in one sense, and that is they usually were warm at least, um, if not hot. And we tended to get a bit more meat and protein in the diet than we had in the detention center. I really think um, that the detention center regime, everything there is designed to simply break the morale of prisoners to get them to crumble and accept their fate and confess and all that kind of thing. Uh, and in the prison, they want people to work, so they give them a bit more protein. Um, so um, we were allowed yard exercise um, when we went to fetch uh, our hot water in the morning. That was a kind of exercise. Um, and we were allowed yard exercise most days in the mid-afternoon for half an hour. It was inside the equivalent of a basketball court um, with very high fencing around it uh, attached to our cell block. And uh, that was an improvement too, because on a sunny day, it meant you got some sunshine, which you never got in, in the detention center. But you could only walk round and round in circles like a lion in a zoological garden cage, you know. Um, uh, so that was some of the basic new things. And, and uh, it took me a long time to get my prison account up and running so that I could buy necessities. I had left a lot of things behind at the detention center, um, donating them to cellmates there. Um, and it took over a month to get uh, my money recognized and to be able to start using the prison shopping system. Um, also for the first month, I was my two minders were supposed to keep me isolated from other prisoners, in particular several prisoners who were very uh, rebellious. Um, they were concerned, I think, that I would join forces with these other rebels. Actually, later on, I did. Um, and But gradually, this system of chaperoning broke down. I mean, for the first week or two, I wasn't allowed to go down to the um, the activity room by myself, for example. I always had to be with these two minders. Um, but that gradually broke down. However, um, after a couple of weeks, a new uh, warder was put in charge of my cell. Each cell had a specific warder assigned to, to be its supervisor. And uh, for the first week or two, I had a very uh, apparently soft uh, warder running. And then they put in somebody to replace him who was notorious as, as the hardest guy uh, in our cell block. And uh, he was only assigned to this cell because I was there. And, and his his mission was to try and get me to sign confessions. There's a huge part of life in the Chinese prison is all about writing your thoughts and confessions. Okay, it's 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 a remnant of brainwashing. And for weak-minded people, it is brainwashing. So your supervising warder asks you to write um, daily thought reports in a in a diary. He asks you also for a weekly report on what you've been doing this week and uh, and so forth. And then you get a monthly report, and this stuff goes on and on. In addition to that, you're supposed to write something called um, an admission of guilt report. And you're supposed to, you know, confess profusely to the, the, the deep crimes that you've committed. Um, and in, in addition to that, you're supposed to write a repentance report. Hui Zui Shu. 
um, a repentance report, you're supposed to express your remorse in the most groveling, deep and pathetic terms. And so a lot of the prisoners did all that stuff. It reminded me in a way of school children in school uh, being punished by being forced to write lines, you know, write a hundred times, I must be a good boy, I must be a good boy, that kind of thing. And uh, a lot of the prisoners could be seen doing this stuff a lot in, in their spare time when they were not working. And uh, uh, this, I, I told them, I'm never going to write any of this stuff. I'm innocent. I'm not going to write an admission of guilt. I'm not going to write a repentance report. I'm innocent. And when I get out of here after serving my term, I'm going after the people who did this to me. So I never did, to the very end, uh, write any of those those things. Um, and I, I learned as I went along that the officers don't even believe in this either themselves. But prisoners who do this, they get some recognition they collect some merit points for this. Another way uh, to gather merit points was to perform, perform wholeheartedly in this uh, mandatory manufacturing labour. Now, there were some opt-outs. Um, when I was there, some prisoners were able to get permission to study something or to perform a communal service such as keeping the corridors clean, you know, keeping the, the activity room clean, this, keeping the stairways clean. Um, but most of the prisoners uh, in my block did participate in this mandatory um, labour because it gave them two things. It gave them merit points. It also gave them a bit of money. And there were a lot of prisoners there from poor countries who, whose families didn't have money to be able to send them money into their prison account. So those prisoners would work full time, full time. And for that full time work, they would earn the equivalent of about 10 pounds a month for at least 40 hours work. Um, the third way of earning merit points, which lead to a reduction in sentence theoretically was to snitch, you know, to be, well-behaved in the sense of keeping the officers informed, you know, and there was plenty of that going on, uh, mostly um, among, I would say, ethnic Chinese and Southeast Asians. Um, ethnic Chinese means Chinese with foreign passports, you know, um, and so some of them would be snitching, and you had to be careful who you told what, yeah. Um, I, I came to realize that one or two people were talking to me just to be able to earn some points by going back and reporting the conversation to the officers. So I was careful, but I also used it as a conduit to send messages to the officers about my intentions, <laughs> the things I wanted them to understand, but not the things I didn't want them to understand. Um, so day after day, week after week, month after month, I went through this. Um, the medical situation in the prison, in theory, uh, there was a clinic inside the prison compound, um, but in practice, it was very difficult to get any uh, service out of it that you needed. Um, there was a thing, a, a funny ritual twice a day where um, the medication uh, trolley came uh, around and, and actually parked at one end of the corridor. And it was manned by um, 
two or three designated prisoners of high trust uh, and overseen by an officer. And when this trolley came around, uh, some medicines were dispensed to prisoners who had recorded uh, um, medical conditions and required prescriptions, and they had been approved. Uh, And then the trolley would come around again about 5 p.m. later on in the day. And so, uh, in theory, they were providing some medical attention. And a prison doctor came to visit our block every Wednesday morning. Uh, People would queue up with their complaints um, to see him. And it was it was very dismissive, rather like what I'd seen in the detention centre. Although there are one or two uh, more serious cases where I think people did get some medical attention, but it was never adequate. Um, there were people with cancer um, who died in there, and uh, because they didn't get proper medical treatment. And I know of several cases who have died since I, I left the prison for the same same reason. Um, um, so the medical treatment was appalling. Some prisoners had dental problems, um, you know, teeth snapped or, or, or they got bad teeth. Um, and there were only two services provided of dentistry for the prisoners. One was extractions and the other was filing a tooth down. Uh, there was no remedial work ever done. Um, so that was an appalling thing for, for a lot of people too, including myself. Five of my teeth snapped from the shortage of um, vitamins and minerals uh, at the time, especially calcium. Uh, five of my teeth teeth snapped, and I had to get them sorted out after my release. Um, most of the prisoners were kept busy working uh, at the manufacturing labour, and this labour included making packaging components, packaging materials and so forth, or little things that could be put into something bigger. Um, So no machinery was involved in this work. It was all very manual. And some of the orders, we could see where they came from. Uh, Some of the orders came from certain Chinese companies in the Shanghai area. And some of the orders carried foreign brand names. Um, and this is something I've written about. I saw the names of H&M, C&A, 3M, and a number of other foreign brands there. And since my release, um, I have found out through release prisoners that they've even been making things for some of the higher-end fashion uh, brands too, um, as well as making um, uh, of packaging Quaker Oats for uh, Pepsi and packaging um Christmas cards, charity Christmas cards for Tesco. Um, so most of the prisoners were busy on those things, those kind of manufacturing jobs while I was there. But I was allowed, um, they knew I was going to be difficult and, 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 uh, and I wasn't going to be there long by comparison with all those lifers who were in there. And I was allowed to read. Um, so I did a lot of reading and writing. I took notes on what I read. I also wrote a lot of letters. Um, uh, I had a bit more freedom to write uh, than I had at the detention centre because I was allowed to keep pens and paper and envelopes and buy stamps. Um, and I sent out a lot of letters uh, to friends and relatives during that time. Um, in a certain sense, you could say I was, I was sending out a breadcrumb trail um, because I wanted to make sure that certain details 
of this experience would not be forgotten by me after I got out. So I collected all those letters together after my release um, from, back from everybody, uh, and that gave me an opportunity um, to reconstruct a lot of my experiences. It was very cold in there in the winter, um, and we were actually allowed uh, to have a warm or almost hot shower um, four or five days a week. There was a separate building called the Shower House, um, and we had to march to this shower house in formation um, and go into two different shower halls in the shower house. It reminded me a bit like the gas chambers at Auschwitz, you know, oh, there's lots of us going into this very dark hall with showers in it. Um, and uh, it was an extraordinary scene because among my cell block population of 150, you know, there were at least um, a third of them, maybe more than a third of them were Africans. And uh, uh, there were probably another quarter who were uh, Asians, Southeast Asians or ethnic Chinese. There were not that many white people. So it was a rather extraordinary experience uh, showering with all the, that diversity around me, ethnic diversity. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of traumatic image too from my my uh, my memory. Um, now, throughout the time I was in Qingpu, I was constantly reminding the authorities and demanding um, investigation of my prostate problem. Okay, it was still a problem, and I was developing stronger symptoms. You know, like going to the toilet twenty times a day and things like that. Um, uh, and, and fatigue um, and so forth, clearly the symptoms of, of, of prostate cancer. And it was only 21 months into my captivity, around April 2015, that I finally managed to get an MRI scan done. Um, my embassy had been lobbying uh, for this for some time, and finally we got it. Um, and... Uh, my cell supervising officer, Captain Way, had been using this, you know, the withholding of anything to do with my prostate as a tool to try and get me to sign a forced confession. I would say, you know, I want my prostate examined. He would say, you haven't signed a confession. Um, and that went on until, as I say, April of 2015. And then I finally was given uh, an MRI scan at a nearby hospital. And the scan result came back as showing a tumor. And as soon as I got this news, I used my call allowance to let my son know this. And I told my son to make sure that he went, he contacted my journalist friends in London and told them to go to the Foreign Office press briefing every day and ask them why our country was going to give a red carpet welcome to Xi Jinping, the president of China, a dictator, when an innocent British businessman was being held in a Chinese jail with cancer. I knew that that call would be recorded and eventually that they would pick up on it. Um, I also notified my consulate uh, about the, the, the MRI result. And soon after that, some things started to change. Um, I could sense that some wheels were moving and, and something was changing towards me. Uh, 
And uh, they tried to persuade me to move to a thing called the sub-brigade. Okay, the main brigade of foreign prisoners is called the 8th Brigade. And it has a sub-brigade, which is a smaller unit where prisoners on very short terms due to, due to be released soon go, um, and where some people with uh, some illnesses go, um, and where one or two VIP prisoners go, Chinese VIP prisoners, and where six Filipino lady boys were as well, a strange, a strange sub subunit called the sub brigade. They tried to get me away from the main prisoners of, of my uh, brigade, and were pushing me to do that. And I was resisting because I, you know, I'd got lots of lines of communication between prisoners in my cell block, um, and I think that they were concerned that um, if and when they were going to release me early. They were concerned about the impact I could have on the, the prisoners in, 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 in the 8th Brigade. So they were trying to move me. And eventually they, they did. Um, and I managed to take uh, one of my cellmates with me, who was a good friend, um, on the grounds that, look, I need a carer because I'm, you know, I'm sick, right? And so he's been helping me a lot. Can he come? So we both moved. But during this period, of the last couple of months in Qingpu, um, the most senior officer in our cell block who revealed himself to be to be the most senior officer. He had never admitted that before. And he started trying to enter into conversations with me, clearly trying to nudge me towards writing something and signing something. Even the governor of the prison came to see me. It was unheard of invited me into a small meeting room for coffee. And the vice governor invited me to the office block to have a chat and a coffee. They were trying to persuade me to sign something on grounds that you know, I could then probably get out early and leave together with my wife. You know, my wife had a two-year sentence um, and I had a two-and-a-half-year sentence. And I simply said to them, I'm sorry, but I know that's only possible if I confess to a crime that I haven't committed. And I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm staying here until the last day of my sentence is served and there's nothing you can do about it. So I took that position all, all the way through. And this put them in a very difficult situation. Um, the guy below this most senior officer of my block, um, who was considered to be the number two or number three in the block and who was the real harasser of, of prisoners, uh, went ballistic over this when I, I refused to to cooperate. But in the end, the most senior officer, who I would describe as the political commissar of our brigade, um, and I reached a kind of compromise fudge with kind of ifs and buts in it. Basically, it was along the lines of, um, you know, if I have committed this crime, then I'm sorry, but I didn't know I was doing so. It was just nonsense stuff. And then soon after that, I was moved from the sub-brigade to a hospital, which was called the Shanghai Prisons General Hospital. And that hospital was located inside the campus of another prison called Nanhui Prison. And this was done very furtively. You know, early one morning after I'd been getting, they told me to 
to get all my things into the, the officers' meeting room uh, for them to go through. They actually took two days to go through everything because I had a lot of letters and a lot of books. They took away some written material. I had kept a secret diary uh, during the whole time. and they, they took that away, and I told them they should seal it um, uh, in a brown envelope, and we should all sign the seal, and they should preserve it because otherwise one day they might find themselves in trouble. Um, and after two days of all this going through my, my belongings, um, they rather furtively took me away early one morning to that prison hospital. Um, and I asked the senior officer, uh, will I be coming back after my treatment? And he said, probably not. Um, so this was, this was a, a subterfuge, right? And even I had not been told I was leaving. They hadn't confirmed I was leaving at <laughs> this. It's a game of mystery. And I was put into this, uh, prison hospital for, um, for about five days. Um, and I was put into a, a small room, not in a main ward, um, with one other prisoner. And I'm pretty sure that prisoner was really there just to, to watch me. Um, I was kept there for five days. And then on the fifth day, after having received no treatment and not having seen a single doctor or nurse, um, I, um, was suddenly visited by the original police investigation team, my former interrogators, and several senior officers from Chengpu Prison and the senior officer of the prison hospital. They came to see me, and the police announced that I was being released um, the next day. And uh, I, I had to sign a receipt for this um, release order, which came from the judiciary. Uh, and the police presented me with a list of promises, and it was handwritten. This was not a regular printed document, part of process. But they were threatening me, you know, I had to sign these promises. And this list of promises included a lot of things like, you know, not to go to the media after my release, not to um, challenge the verdict. Um, there were several other knots. There were 10 altogether. The final one, though, was not to report to Beijing about what happened to me in Shanghai. This was an extraordinary thing for them to be doing. And I just said, you know, this is complete rubbish. This is not an official document. It has no legal value. And I signed it by hand with the words, under duress, not Peter Humphrey, but under duress. They didn't seem to notice. Um, so I was then released uh, the next day. Um, not quite, but almost anyway. Uh, I was released into a period of 10 days grace before being deported. I had requested this from the judge to enable me and my wife to try to tidy up some administrative loose ends with our family and things like that um, before leaving. And uh, But we didn't receive freedom to move around. Uh, they put us into a small hotel uh, which is probably controlled by the police. And my wife and I were reunited at that point in time. Uh, both of us were very highly traumatized, very emotional, uh, obviously. And uh, both of us were shocked at how thin and gray-skinned um, we both were. Um, I took some uh, – we, we received um, 
our mobile phones had iPads back from a relative who had been taking care of them the next day. And I took some photographs of us uh, in this this hotel room to, to, to show the state that we were in. This hotel room had bars on the window <laughs> and my wife was allowed out only under escort with police officers to go to the bank and go to visit her, her cousins. And I was not allowed out. I had to stay in the hotel. And if I wanted to leave my room to go downstairs to uh, the restaurant or whatever, I had to knock on the door of a policeman next door to me. And the whole corridor of rooms were occupied by policemen from the original investigation team. Um, so it was a frustrating time. The judge had also agreed to a request from me that I could I could have my uh, data returned to me from my laptop, because my laptop had been confiscated as part of my judgment uh, two years earlier. And uh, um, when I asked for this, the police obstructed the whole process and for about nine, uh, seven days, they, they obstructed the process. And in the end, I realized I wasn't going to get any further joy out of them. Um, so we said, right, we're leaving the next day. We didn't even spend the full days, full 10 days grace period in, in China. And we left China on the 17th of June, 2015 on a Virgin Air flight. And, um, in the morning before we left the hotel building to be escorted to the airport, a team of senior officers from the Shanghai um, government and police came to visit us. There were two, two, two senior officers plus a secretary. And they took us through this list of promises again and tried to get us to sign these promises all over again. And I made it clear. I said, I don't accept these promises and I will do whatever I like after I'm out of here. You know, I can sign this for you, but it means nothing because it is not a legal document. So I signed it again under duress uh, in illegible handwritten English. And that was it. And we were then escorted to the airport by police. All the procedures were taken care of by the police. We were not allowed to be exposed to the public. We were taken through back channels into um, a waiting room, a private waiting room to keep us away from the public. And uh, eventually we were taken to the plane, to the gates of the plane. Uh, the last thing I did before I left was I bought a copy of The Economist magazine, uh, which had given me so much comfort um, during all those days in the cells because um, I'd, I'd read The Economist magazine sent in rather late uh, by friends uh, over those two years. So I bought an Economist magazine and we boarded this Virgin Air flight and after we were escorted to our seats, I told the, the chief steward who we were and what our circumstances were. And I asked him to relay a message to the foreign office in London through the captain uh, that we were on board that plane. Uh, the foreign office didn't know because uh, for the final month of this cat and mouse game, they had basically hidden us from uh, our consulate and our consulate hadn't known where we were and what was happening. So we finally left and it was only then that I really felt free. You know, after that plane took off and entered international airspace, I felt that we were free. But it's really hard to feel free um, after something like this um, because your imprisonment stays with you. And, uh, um, of course, friends and relatives and well-wishers 
all think, thank God, they're free now. Um, but you always remain, remain a prisoner of that experience. It's quite hard to, to move on from it. In my case, I, I, I've been suffering from PTSD ever since this experience. Um, my wife has recovered quite a lot now, although the grief over her brother really um, held her back mentally for five years. Um, but she's now moving on. She's writing a book about the history of her family, and she's relearning the violin. I'm so sorry for what you and your wife and your family had to go through. Um, every former prisoner I've interviewed said the exact same thing. Um, you may leave prison, but prison never leaves you. Uh, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe has said that. Um, Aya Hijazi, who was held in American uh, hum- humanitarian, who was held in Egypt for three years, said that. Jose Pereira, who was one of the Citgo 60 American oil executive held in Venezuela for five years, exact same thing, agrees that you may leave prison, prison never leaves you. What was it like being reunited with your son when you're back? We were reunited with uh, our son at Heathrow Airport. Over the preceding few days, um, I had uh, defied a um, a police ban on us communicating with our mobile phone, mobile phones. Um, even though our, our, our cousin had returned our mobile phones to us. Um, so we agreed, but I found uh, one of them was working still and I managed to send, um, discreet SMS messages to a friend in Beijing who passed the messages on to our son in England. Um, to keep him informed about what was happening to us, where we were, and which flight we were taking out. So he was at Heathrow Airport together with my brother and my sister-in-law um, and his children, grown-up children, um, and together with my friend Carrie Gracie from the BBC and another friend from the Wall Street Journal and a close family friend who had been very supportive of Harvey during this whole thing, uh, a lawyer by trade, who had tried to lobby for us in Whitehall and not been very successful. They were there. Um, it was very emotional. Um, when we stepped off the plane, um, we were met by four armed police, uh, anti-terrorist police, who had been sent along to make sure that we had a smooth passage through the airport. Basically, we were protected. Um, and uh, we went through back channels to, and then out by the regular uh, meet and greet area. And those people were all there waiting for us. And then the policeman just melted away. Um, and so uh, my son had a big hug with his mum first. And uh, I pushed in forward to embrace him. And I had a big hug with my brother. My brother started crying. He's six years older than me, but he started crying. And I said, shut the fuck up. It's not you who's supposed to be crying. <laughs> um, that was like, that's what it was like. And, th- and then Harvey and I, Carrie, uh, Carrie invited us to go to the, the little bar um, beside the meet and greet area. And um, Harvey and I sat down together with a beer, and it was my first Guinness in two years. Um, we had a short interview with Carrie um, and with a lady from the Wall Street Journal. 
Um, so that was the beginning. And then my, my brother and my sister-in-law drove us first to their house. Um, so that has kind of unwind a little bit. Um, and then we went to this little flat, which we own nearby where Harvey had been staying for these two years. Um, and as we walked in the door, Harvey said, <coughs> now we're a family again. You can see it still makes me very emotional um, thinking about these things. Um, he was an orphan for two years and uh, robbed of uh, um, many things for those two years. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before, I mean, he's uh, very strong and resilient. Um, and all, all three of you uh, are a very strong and resilient family, uh, given what you went through. So you mentioned you had PTSD and you mentioned your wife took some time, took about five years to get, I wouldn't say get over, but come to terms with the trauma that she lost her brother. For for the families with loved ones still held hostage or imprisoned overseas and for other former hostages who are looking for some advice or some guidance, how did you find the strength to keep on going? Because I know you you mentioned you, you had PTSD, but like, was it just something you took day by day, three feet at a time? How, how did you, obviously, obviously you never, you never completely get over it, but how do you go from coming back home to becoming high functioning again? I'm not sure whether I ever become high functioning again, um, but I mean, we had a number of priorities that we knew we had to pursue, um, and those priorities uh, framed our life uh, after our release. Um, you know, we had, for example, to fight a battle against the life-threatening organic uh, threat, which. I carried with me, and that was my cancer. So uh, priority number one was to uh, thoroughly check our health over, especially my suspected cancer. Um, and I was, in fact, diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. And uh, so in the second half of 2015, I began a treatment program, which initially included hormone uh, treatments. And then early in 2016, it moved to radiation therapy treatment. Um, so I was uh, pretty much focused on that and on some other medical problems that I had as a result of the harsh conditions that I lived in in China. Um, at the same time, um, we, we felt um, that we needed to investigate our own case so in, in the style of our old um, due diligence company, China Wise, we carried out an investigation into ourselves to understand what had happened to us, um, because much of what happened in relation to our case happened outside our prison walls without our knowledge uh, beyond our sight. So we spent a year or two investigating that. Um, and at the end of 2015, we sent a report, a complaint to 
the Beijing government about what had happened to us, um, naming names and providing evidence. Um, we never received a serious reply, just maybe a three-liner sent back to the Foreign Office, which said we had committed a crime, we'd been convicted, and we'd served our time, basically. Um, uh, so we, at the same time, we initiated um, lit, um, a process with litigation lawyers in New York to sue uh, our former client who had got us into trouble that litigation lasted six years and was concluded in March of 2022 with us extracting an out-of-court settlement. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, after our arrival into the civilised world, uh, we needed a home. Um, you know, all of our household belongings were still in China. Uh, a friend of ours had got everything removed by a removal company and stored in a warehouse. Um, we needed a house uh, to receive those belongings. We needed to reactivate bank accounts and so forth and get access to to money outside China. Um, we also needed to recover uh, the belongings of our office, which the police hadn't seized. They had seized quite a lot of files um, uh, and so forth. So there was a lot to do on a functional basis that we had to do. We found a house at the end of the year of 2015. We moved into it at Easter in 2016. We were then able to take uh, delivery of our uh, shipment from China and try to move into the new house and so forth. Um, so there were a lot of things like that which kept us uh, functionally active. Um, but the work on our own self-investigation was traumatic and traumatizing, um, especially the discoveries around the communication concerning my brother-in-law's health and his death. Uh, these discoveries were very traumatizing for Ying to, to see and hear for the first time as we uh, reviewed people's emails or interviewed people about the circumstances. Um, and I needed, uh, it was clear after I got out of my um, cancer treatment, first round of cancer treatment, I needed help with my, my mental health. Um, and so I, I started the process of trying to get uh, PTSD counselling on the National Health Service, and that was extremely difficult. Eventually in 2017, I got assigned my first counsellor, and he helped me get through a lot of roadblocks to enable me um, to write a long article for the Financial Times Weekend magazine about my experience, uh, which was published in 2018. That article was written under PTSD counselling. Um, I, I, um, we also embarked on writing a book, and uh, for several years, um, writing that book um, preoccupied us and it simply re-traumatized me. Uh, and although we made a lot of, of ground with this book um, and developed a first uh, version of the manuscript and had interest from publishers and, uh, and agents, um, when we settled uh, our litigation with uh, our cl former client, it meant that we could no longer publish that book. So um, that's back on... Uh, the thinking agenda right now. Um, 
what we can do with that uh, in a compliant manner. Um, so all of these things occupied us. Um, but the hardest days were certainly the first months. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming, having nightmares. There was one night when um, I dreamed that the police who had interrogated me marched into our, our bedroom and grabbed me, and I was screaming. And our son came in from the other room and, and what's going on, what's going on? And as I saw the silhouette of my son in the doorway, I was convinced that he was a policeman. Um, you know, things like that re-traumatized us. And then, you know, something happened to my wife in, in, in March of 2016 that uh, because we hadn't obtained an official residence visa for her in the UK yet, not knowing our status, um, and having been kind of dropped by the foreign office once we were back, you know, they said if we needed any help, they would give it to us, but they didn't. Uh, and we had assumed that Ying as an American could come in and out for the time being, you know, every two or three months, we could go somewhere in Europe and come back and so forth. And in March, she went, home, she went alone to America to visit her uh, sister-in-law and to recover some belongings of her brothers, some family heirloom things. Um, and when she arrived back at Heathrow Airport, they the immigration police at Heathrow Airport arrested her uh, on grounds that she was living illegally in the UK. And I had to mobilise people yet again. My wife was going through the whole... She was reliving what had happened to her in 2013 in China, but this time in London. And... Uh, with a lot of lobbying on the phones uh, that night, I managed to get her released with a laissez-passe. And eventually, we then had to engage immigration lawyers. And I went through a 21-month battle with the Home Office over this. You know, and in the end, at an appeal hearing in 2018 or 17, 2018, the judge. Of the, of, the, of the immigration court in London threw out the Home Office's uh, case and switched the whole case to human rights legislation. She, they dismissed the Home Office case. And so we finally, you know, won that battle and got um, a ruling from this judge that my wife was entitled to reside in the UK. Um, that was a a new ordeal that we didn't deserve, um, and it happened. Uh, so it's hard. It's really hard. I don't think she's deeply traumatized anymore, but I think I am still, and I guess that's reflected in some of the emotions that you've seen today. No, I completely understand. Based on the former hostages I've interviewed, for an example would be journalist Michael Scott Moore, he was held hostage by Somali pirates for 977 days at gunpoint. It's been seven years since he was released. Uh, I interviewed him earlier this year. He, If you look at him on social media, he looks very chilled out. He's a surfer, uh, tweets, <laughs> tweets jokes. He's a Bob Dylan fan. He says he's high functioning, but he still gets panic attacks. Uh, you you'd never realize uh, if you're looking at him that this was a guy who was held hostage at gunpoint by Somali pirates for 977 days. When you're in survival mode, you do what you can and you take it one day at a time and you do the best you can. And no one really has the right answer. You just get, you surround yourself with the people you care about 
you find motivation to keep on going. So I interviewed uh, an American uh, resident, Jose Pereira, who was wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela for almost five years. He was released uh, 1st of October in a prisoner swap between the US and Venezuela. He was one of seven Americans released. And he said what got him through was this book by uh, Victor E. Frankl called A Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it was written by him during the Holocaust. And Michael Kovrig, Canadian who was held in China as well, I believe he read the same book. So I bought this book now because apparently it comes highly recommended by them. But uh, some people find solace in religion. Did you have any specific way or was it just, I have to do this for family, I have to do this I to think, survive? I think um, inside the detention center um, and inside the prison, um, I think one of the greatest things that, uh, got me through was simply the love uh, between me and my wife and our son. And focusing on that love uh, is the thing that got me through. I did also read a lot. Um, during my captivity, I read about 140 to 150 books. Um, and like other prisoners who perhaps found a particular book that uh, inspired them, uh, one or two books uh, that inspired me to be strong were books like um, Ingrid Betancourt's uh, book, Even Silence Has an End. Um, she was a hostage in the Colombian jungle. Um, uh, uh, I read many books about heroes in prison experiences. I also read Marina Nemat's uh, Hostage in Tehran, or sorry, Prisoner of Tehran, um, I read her book, and uh, but the most inspiring book of all, probably, which I did read um, while I was in Chengpu Prison, is Nelson Mandela's Long Long Walk to Freedom, um, which is a book um, I would always try to send a loved one if they end up for any reason in prison. I believe Jeremy Hunt, when he was Foreign Secretary at the time, actually gave Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, who was still held in prison, a signed copy of that book. I don't think he was able to give it to her directly, but I think he passed it on to be given to her. Uh, I'm not sure whether she was in Evan prison at the time or under house arrest, but yes, so it's a, it's a good book. So Peter, I know you've been helping mentor the families of other hostages from around the world who are currently held in China. It's amazing that you're doing this and we're grateful. Can you talk to us about why this is important to you? Well, it wasn't only me who, who suffered during my experience in, in Chinese jails. Um, there were many other people around me in the cells. And uh, as I interviewed them, I used the word interviewed them, one prisoner to another, um, I realized that there were many detainees and convicted prisoners who didn't deserve the charges that were slapped on them and certainly didn't deserve the sentences that were slapped on them. You know, they were all terrible sob, sob stories. And uh, um, I met a number of people who I promised to try and help after I was released. And uh, so I started doing that after my release, supporting prisoners by sending them reading material, which they wouldn't otherwise have received, for example, uh, contacting their families and helping to 
explain to their families many of the things that a prisoner had not been able to explain to them. Um, and as time went by, um, I started to get uh, the families of prisoners who I'd never met started to contact me. I call them the new cases. Um, so, you know, after I was released, we continued to see stories of this or that foreign person being detained in China on a very murky basis. And uh, some gradually people um, from those families contacted me to ask me for advice and so forth, and this grew. Um, and, and then uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was trying to help the fiancé of a black American man who had been been uh, detained in China and who was under great risk of being prosecuted over the death of a Chinese person um, where he was by no means, you know, responsible. And um, <clears throat> together um, I, wor I worked with his fiancée who was in America um, and I, I basically I steered her on things like what buttons to press, you know, what what buttons to press with your consular representatives or with the Chinese lawyers, um, you know, with the American government and so forth, with NGOs, how to orchestrate um, an effort to prevent her fiancé from being sent to prison. Um, and this was the most extraordinary case because uh, her fiancé was in a form of detention which was totally unorthodox. He wasn't in um, a, no a normal uh, detention centre. He was in a little flat, a grubby little flat, belonging to the police, um, and we call that form of detention residential surveillance at a designated location. That's the Chinese name for it, RSDL. It's a bit of a euphemism for unlawful detention. And... and um, Unusually, they allowed him to have his iPhone like once or twice a week and to call his fiancée back in America. And so um, I started to steer her on what to ask him and uh, started to get her to get him to send documents back to her, snapshots of you know, the arrest notice and other things that he'd received so that I could analyse the case and, and steer her on what to do. This grew into a success. I would say it's almost the only success that I've had with this kind of thing, um, where someone got released in that way. And for the very first time, I saw um, a piece of Chinese documentation, which I'd never seen before, which was a release notice with no, no charge at the end of this uh, nine months uh, detention. And um, I was in touch with uh, somebody from CNN, uh, about this case, and we decided um, to put something together uh, after this man's release um, about this whole mysterious, strange case. Um, and it, my intention was really to to highlight uh, the ordeal of this particular man and his partner, um, because it was an extraordinary story that he'd gone through. But the journalist became interested in me as well and what I've been doing, uh, why am I involved and so forth. 
And he ended up writing a story on CNN's website, which was not just about the prisoner, Jeff Harper, but it was also about me and what I was doing and how I'd, how I'd got involved in, in this kind of thing after being a prisoner myself. So it sort of grew from that. I got even more inquiries after that. And I have, you know, cases from America, from Europe, from Asia and from Africa. Um, where I'm helping, advising. And the advice, the help I give, it's, it's a mixture of things. It's very practical. Um, you know, because I'm not a lawyer, uh, <laughs> and I'm not charging any fees for my, for my effort. Um, first of all, you know, th there's a shoulder that they can cry on, um, of somebody who actually has lived through this kind of stuff and understands, um, what it's like for a prisoner and also what it's like for family, because my, my own son and other family members, um, suffered an ordeal too over my and my wife's unlawful imprisonment in China. So there's that shoulder to cry on. There's, so it's a hand-holding exercise as much as anything, but a lot of practical things because most families outside China who've got someone locked up there do not understand the system. They do not understand the Chinese language and culture. They don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's, it's a mess. Um, and I advise on how to orchestrate support for someone who's been locked up and possibly even how to try and campaign to get him out. Um, I have trained a couple of um, family members of prisoners how to handle media, how to write press releases, um, how to manipulate their consuls, how to manipulate um, uh, the prison authorities and things like that um, and advise on what kind of physical um, things they can they can obtain and do for the prisoner in a Chinese cell to help him make him a bit more comfortable and so forth. What's allowed to be sent, what's not, and so forth. Um, you know, and, and advising them on what kind of things to write in a letter. Uh, what else can they can they send by way of family photos and things like that? How to how to find out more information about his situation. So, and that also went hand in hand with uh, a network which I've built up since my release of other prisoners when they are released. I, I kind of track, trace and track um, some other prisoners when they're released in order to be able to interview them um, to find out updates about things going on inside the prison system and even things going on with specific prisoners who I'm worried about. So that is what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, it gives meaning to my life because, um, you know, I'm trying to share my experience with other people in a way which will help them. Thank you for doing that. I'm sure their families and the former prisoners themselves are very grateful for what you're doing and keep it up. So what recommendations would you give to the families of other hostages currently held abroad as well as former hostages? I know you've, you've just mentioned that you helped them with press releases, how to speak to the media, but for those who you haven't spoken to yet, for those who will be listening to this podcast episode, people you haven't met yet, but are going through similar situations, what recommendations would you give them? I think it's very important that early on uh, a family forms a support group and designates particular individuals, maybe two or three or four individuals um, who've got um, useful um, skills and experience and, and sense um, 
and a useful mental uh, ability to deal with an extraordinary situation, a crisis. Select those people from, from, from around your family circle to form a small support group, which will be the coordinators and thinkers um, for an effort to bring their person home. And um, that support group needs to be united in purpose and united in approaches. Some families become divided. For example, they become divided over the issue of whether um, their family member committed the crime or not, or they become divided over whether or not to try and go to the media and make publicity. Um, it's important that the family has to be united in their approach to helping the family member. Um, I think that's really important, and I do think uh, it is important uh, in cases of wrongful imprisonment or hostage-taking at a state level, it is important uh, to make a lot of noise. Um, the noise you make is not just to put pressure on uh, the government that is holding your loved one, it's to put pressure on your own government as well and make them work for a living because, you know, uh, bureaucrats... Uh, prefer to work, you know, nine to five and so forth, um, that it's important when there's a crisis for a family like this to put pressure on your own government representatives at home and in the embassies abroad um, to help and do more than just uh, be a nanny and messenger to the prisoner. That's really important. And trying to find the right kind of lawyers, I can really talk only about China in this case, uh, but it's still worth saying that, uh, you know, in a lot of these countries where these things happen, the legal profession is a different kind of jungle from the one you may know at home. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to identi identify the right lawyer, an honest lawyer, one who's really going to work for you and so forth, who's not just going to take your fees and then do nothing, which is what happens a lot in China. Um, you may need help and advice from other other people, which can be somebody like me, or it can be an NGO. Like in China's case, there's an NGO called the Duihua Foundation, uh, which tries to help um, people imprisoned in China, mostly mostly political prisoners, but also it will help with some uh, of the kind of cases that we're talking about in terms of offering advice or pointing people towards um, relevant lawyers relevant officials, and so forth. Um, so those are a few things that I would advise families who find themselves in this situation to do. Um, in normal circumstances, normal, quote, unquote, um, you know, it, it, it should be possible for someone to go and visit a prisoner if the prisoner is being held in, in the in the prison system in a country. Of course, if they're a hostage in a cave somewhere, it's a, it's a different matter. Um, but so just take my, my experience with China, for example. Um, you know, it's a big journey for someone to go from America or the UK or, or Australia to try to visit a family member who has been detained uh, or who has been convicted and imprisoned. Um, but it is something very important uh, for the morale of the prisoner, um, you know, of course, first of all, you can try and write to the prisoner and, 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 uh, consuls will try and get the message to the prisoner and so forth. Um, but if a visit is possible to a Chinese prison or a Chinese detention center, if it's allowed, then you should do it because it really does provide one of the most important things that a prisoner in that situation needs 
needs, and that is called hope and support. It, it boosts morale. Thank you for that. And I agree when it comes to state hostage takers, hostage diplomacy cases, going public quickly is, in most cases, works to the benefit of the hostage or detainee. But there have been cases in November 2022, for example, with an Italian tourist, Alicia Paperno, who was held in Iran, and uh, the Italian government told the family to keep quiet. And within two months, she was released. There's also a New Zealand couple, and they were held in Iran within three to four months the New Zealand government were able to secure their release. Again, they told the family not to go public and they told the media outlets not to publish anything about it. And these were two examples of uh, quiet diplomacy when citizens were taken by, well, frankly, taken hostage by a foreign state and they didn't go public and it worked. So most of the people I've interviewed are those with loved ones taken hostage by a state. How it starts out is they give their country, perhaps a couple months, maybe three, four months, some of them even a year to use this quiet diplomacy option to free their loved one. And then they notice nothing happens and then they go public. And when I interview them now, they say if they had to do everything again, they'll go to the media on day one. But hindsight is always twenty twenty. is the problem. Uh, when you're going through the experience for the first time, you're, it's, it's a lot harder. It's easy for me to say. So taking into account these two examples with the New Zealand government and the Italian government with their citizens held in Iran, who they were, who they were able to secure using quiet diplomacy. What are your thoughts on going public straight away? Or do you want to give your government maybe some time? I think that, um, when a case happens, in a country uh, which is clearly not under the rule of law, as we would wish the rule of law to be, um, and where there is serious risk uh, to uh, the detainee or the hostage's life, potentially. Um, I think, you know, you should be going public from day one. Um, you need to show the captors that we're watching you and the world is watching you. Um, you know, I can't speak too much for Iran because I'm not an Iran specialist. And what, what I would say is, though, I mean, I think everyone in the world almost has a hard job fathoming the rationale behind anything that the Iranian regime does. And, you know, whether it was a whisper in the ear of the prisoner's family um, and they're refraining for a couple of months from public uh, activity that helped bring about that release, it's very hard to say. Um, you know, it's very hard to say. But one thing I can say, going back to the China stories, is that the two Michaels from Canada, um, they were both detained in the space of a matter of a week or so apart from each other uh, in December of 2018. And there was a lot of publicity from the very beginning. And without that publicity, if, if there had been no publicity at all, they would not be free now. Um, you know, keeping that pressure on was very important. There were good people working, uh, for their cause to get them out. And it was an effective media campaign. Um, I know another Westerner who was detained 
in China within the same month. Um, and this is a case which I can't divulge details on um, because of a request by the family. But he was detained in the same period as the two Michaels. He's still there today. And I believe that is because the family did not go public with the case. I understand what you're saying. And I agree with you. Um, when families ask me, what do I recommend? I would say from the pe- uh, based on the, the interviews I've conducted with the families of loved ones and former hostages, they say go to the media immediately when you're taken by a state actor. In the case of a non-state actor, like yeah. a terrorist group or some well, other pirates. Like, like ISIS, for example, yes. Yeah, a media blackout can actually benefit the hostage. Mm. But this is something where I understand your point, and I would provide the same recommendation. I think in the case of the two Michaels, Canada had to give up a concession, which was they freed Meng, right? And I think what people tend to say is, if the case becomes public, it raises the price of the hostage. It, it has a benefit to the hostage because they are then taken, uh, the hostage taker will take better care of them because they cost a lot more. But for the government who's negotiating for their release, they're going to have to pay a higher ransom or give up a bigger concession. So that's where the family's interest and the hostage's interest differs from the government's interest. Yeah. And I that that's why governments tend to push you to keep, keep quiet. And this is why uh, yeah. hostages and families want to go public because they feel protected. And I think that dynamic is something that people need to know about. Eventually, it's up to you what you decide, but it's important to know that dynamic. Yeah, uh, I fully agree. Um, yeah. So what should the Chinese government do better and I understand that perhaps these recommendations may fall on deaf ears, but you never know who's listening. So what do you think, in in your case, the Chinese government should have done better? Well, I think that mountain that they have to climb is far higher than any other mountain on this planet. Um, you know, first of all, China does not have a proper judicial system. Um, it does not have a rule of law where... The law is superior to everybody um, because you've got a hundred million Communist Party officials um, who can override the law in their own jurisdictions in China. And the central government in China overrides it on a large scale. Uh, This is a real problem. Another problem is that you don't have separation of powers in the system between judiciary, prosecution, uh, police, and so forth, and the legal profession even. Uh, All of those uh, agencies or organs of the system, um, all of them are in cahoots with each other all the time. And so even the legal profession has its hands tied by the fact that Chinese lawyers are um, duty-bound to pledge allegiance to the Communist Party and its rules. Uh, and if they don't, they will probably get arrested as well, which happened on a large scale in 2015 and 2016. Um, so all of the people working in those four or five different agencies of this system, um, they are all from the same stable, and that is the Communist Party. Uh, so 
that is a mountain to climb because it's the whole system that's the problem. But on on smaller scale levels, you know, um, what China should do is first of all uh, respect its own laws, and very often uh, prosecutions and and trial judgments do not respect China's own laws, and and very often the treatment of prisoners whether it's in a pre-trial detention centre or in a prison, does not respect China's laws and it does not respect the treaty obligations that it is committed to, for example, under the International Convention on Minimum Standards for the Treatment of Prisoners, um, for example, or, or, or the Convention on Torture. Um, it does not respect any of these things. They're all areas where they can improve. You know, there should be beds or, or bunks in detention centres. There aren't. They sleep on the floor. There should be proper food, proper balanced nutrition for prisoners. There isn't. You know, they should have access to lawyers when they're uh, in pre-trial, uh, pre-trial uh, detention. And the access to their lawyer is very, very limited. Communication is obstructed deliberately to make it difficult for a prisoner to orchestrate a defense. Um, they should have access to their family uh, through letters and phone calls before their trial. They don't. Um, only after they go to prison as convicts do they start to get some access to, to their family. Uh, all of these things are really important. Uh, they're easy things to fix, but the, the big system itself is very hard. Uh, but those are definitely the things that uh, the Chinese government could do better. So you're a British citizen, what should the British government do better? Or at least in uh, in your case, I know with uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe's case, uh, the British citizen who was uh, wrongfully imprisoned in Iran, or held hostage in Iran, her detention and the campaign to free her shed a light on the lack of significant effort on the, on the part of the British government to protect and free British citizens wrongfully imprisoned or held hostage over, overseas you were taken before she was taken what should the british government do better now i mean i think that um i think the british government has been a laggard in in um confronting these these cases these situations on behalf of its citizens um the british government has a history of putting um bilateral trade and commercial interests ahead of um the rights and interests of a wrongfully detained British citizen. Um, our government has a history of behaving in that way. And our foreign office, um, which is the equivalent of foreign ministry, our foreign office um, is quite weak and, and uh, timid in its approach towards foreign governments, foreign states who, who take prisoners unlawfully or arbitrarily. Um, so I think that we need uh, a more robust approach to this in general. No government, whether it's mine or the American government, should take the view that we cannot interfere or intervene in the case, quote, unquote. I was constantly told that by my consular visitor in China. Um, my view is that in a country where there is no rule of law and where prisoners do not get... Um, the the right to orchestrate a proper defense, for example, and where they are being mistreated in captivity. I think in those kind of countries, our government should interfere and intervene and should speak out about the details of the legal case 
so-called legal case against the prisoner. And the same, I would say, my message for America too, and every you know government of um, a country under the rule of law and under a democratic system, they should they should do so. And ours doesn't. So that's one thing they should do better. Um, I, I also um, I also think that uh, uh, with regard to China, for example, and possibly some other. Uh, countries with, with rather, um, uh, how can I say, uh, rather unusual cultural systems and, and languages. Um, our government does not put enough effort into training enough specialists in those countries. And when there are prisoner situations, they often assign very junior, uh, officials to be the handler for that case. And that is totally unacceptable. We need more experts on such countries within our foreign office uh, and some of our other bodies of government who get involved in these things. We need more and we need more senior people to be the visitors and handlers for persons who are detained abroad. So you mentioned something, Peter, which is quite important, is that the lack of training for foreign office staff when they're speaking to their citizens in prison overseas. Now, I spoke to Diane Foley, president and founder of the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. Obviously, for those of you who are unaware, James W. Foley was the uh, American journalist who was taken hostage and murdered by ISIS. And less than a month uh, after his brutal murder, his mother, Diane Foley, founded the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. I had the honor of interviewing her earlier this year. And we were talking about America's response to their citizens held hostage and wrongfully imprisoned overseas. Now, sh she mentioned this as well. So in, in the case of the United States, there's the Bureau of Consular Affairs. So when an American citizen is in prison abroad, your first point of contact is the Bureau of Consular Affairs. Now, there are a lot of Americans uh, imprisoned abroad. Not all of them are innocent. Many of them, in fact, do actually commit, uh, have committed actual crimes and they are dealt with by the Bureau of Consular Affairs. There are a small number of Americans who are wrongfully imprisoned by foreign states. And the thing is, their cases are very complex. And you need people with specialist training to deal with foreign governments that have wrongfully imprisoned your citizens. Now, the Bureau of Consular Affairs, I'm sure their staff do great work, but like many public sector institutions, they are overworked and understaffed and they're doing the best they can with the resources they have. So what the United States has within the US State Department is a special team called the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs team. And they deal specific, they specialize in dealing with Americans wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad. And they provide advice to uh, the President of the United States, Secretary of State, and uh, National Security Advisor on what are the best strategies to bring these Americans wrongfully imprisoned or held hostage abroad home. And the reason for that was because the Bureau of Consular Affairs weren't equipped to deal with these cases. The majority of Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad now are held by foreign countries, not terrorist organizations. So state-sponsored hostage-taking or hostage diplomacy has escalated significantly in the last few years. Do you think the UK should 
create a similar team because I do. So after Nazanin came home, during one of her first press releases, she said, why did it take six years to almost six years to free me? And that was a valid question. And I believe there was a inquiry initiated by the Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee within the UK Parliament on state-sponsored hostage-taking. I submitted evidence and it was published on the Foreign Office website. But then because of the turmoil within the government and the change of prime ministers, we don't know what's happening with the inquiry. But one of my primary recommendations was to create a similar team within the Foreign Office in the UK, just like what the US has in place, which is the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. These are people who are specialists and they deal with wrongfully, de wrongfully detained and hostage cases. Richard Ratcliffe did tell me, Nazanin's husband, did tell me that his case was handled by a special team within the Foreign Office, but it wasn't a team dedicated for wrongful, wrongfully detained British citizens. It seemed to be because their case was very high profile, there was a special team within the Foreign Office that dealt with it. Do you think a special team like this within the Foreign Office would be beneficial? First of all, uh, to the very last thing you said, uh, the, uh, the Nazanin case, that uh, team was an ad hoc team and not uh, a permanent institution uh, within the Foreign Office. And it was only formed because of the very hard work, love and dedication of Richard Ratcliffe and the campaign that he waged through the media and, and on the government um, uh, that's why that ad hoc um, support group was formed in the Foreign Office, and I do agree. I do agree entirely that um, uh, we do need to set up something like the Americans have. I am aware of SPIHA uh, and and uh, its its role in the State Department. More importantly, though, um, there is American legislation which underpins this. Um, a law called the Levinson Act, which sets out the criteria to, in order to define uh, what is an arbitrarily detained person, um, in other words, a hostage. Uh, and I think that's really important um, because one of the criteria, for example, refers to uh, the issue of whether there is due process and a fair trial and so forth. Um, and, and so that we've got criteria there in the American legislation, which uh, includes the establishment of what you call SPIHA. Uh, SPIHA was set up because of that. And this is a, a development of just three years or so, right? Um, in the United, in the United Kingdom, we are behind the curve on these things. And, uh, following on from America's lead, our government has been uh, looking into and Parliament has been looking into setting up some similar arrangements here in the UK. Uh, but unfortunately, as you say, turmoil in our governments, um, the revolving door in Whitehall um, has has interfered to some extent in, in, in getting this process completed. Um, but I think it's essential to put those legislative and structural building blocks in there and then to staff them with properly trained people who specialize in these in dealing with these situations um you know that means cost uh, the, the government needs to put money into into this sort of thing um i'd like to pick up though on on, on something else and, and that is that uh, you, you referred to the fact that um the majority of american prisoners abroad have 
probably committed some kind of offence or crime, uh, and only a small number have not. I I can't agree with that because, you know, just looking at China alone, and the same would be true of many of the countries that we have in view. Um, But in China alone, not a single prisoner among all the millions of prisoners in various Chinese facilities, not one of them has ever had a fair and transparent trial in front of an independent judge not a single one. And therefore, if they were Americans, all of those millions of prisoners would have relevance under the uh, Levinson Act. And I think that governments under the rule of law and democracy need to recognize this, that there's not a single prisoner in China who's ever had a fair and transparent trial. And even if one of your citizens stole something or did something wrong, that is not the point. What we have to fight for is the right to fair and transparent trials for people who are accused of crimes. Uh, we really have to fight for that. And if, 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 um, if they don't get that in the country that's holding them, then we should be, we should be fighting through every possible way, pressure and everything to get them out. No, that's a fair point. So for people who've listened to this podcast, you probably know that there are many cases of hostage diplomacy around the world. Uh, it's not, it doesn't just affect the Brits, it doesn't just affect Americans, it doesn't just affect Canadians, it's a, in, it's a global problem and it requires a global response. So Peter, in your opinion, what should the international community be doing better? When, when thinking about what the international community should be doing better here, um, I'll just single out one particularly important area and that is that Certain agencies under the United Nations, um, which is, you know, it's the core, the heart of the so-called international community, the United Nations, which should be, but certain agencies under it, part of it, um, have work in this realm of arbitrary detention or torture, and various other things like that, uh, which falls under the more general umbrella of the, of the, of the UN's human rights, um, organization. And these organizations have unfortunately failed to do their duty in many cases. Uh, So if if we take the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, for example, we know from whistleblowers who've left the organization, we know that China's interference inside that agency was severe. And that, uh, you know, many cases that should have been properly investigated and addressed and ruled upon by the WGAD were not. Uh, and this, this is a major problem because that's p- partly why we can't arouse the so-called international community on these issues. It's because um, the UN is increasingly paralyzed by state actors like China or Iran and, and, and others who are in their pocket. Now, Peter, as we've seen with the cases of the two Canadian Michaels held in China, Michael Kovriga and Michael Spavor, as well as many others, China is notorious for its hostage diplomacy. What should international businesses with operations in China be doing to safeguard their employees? Well, first of all, um, corporations sending people to work in China um, should purchase a rather expensive type of insurance called K&R insurance, that's kidnap and ransom insurance. And variants of it, variants of that insurance, um, which do not specifically cover kidnaps like 
kidnapped by ISIS, for example, or the FARC rebels, um, but uh, cover situations where a representative of a company uh, could be, has been arbitrarily detained as the representative of the company in, in, in that country. Um, and, and we have seen plenty of cases in China where people who were representatives of a company um, were effectively taken hostage in the name of, you know, detention or, or, or an alleged crime. So insurance is one thing that international corporations uh, should have. But on a more practical level, um, they also need to have uh, sets of procedures, uh, policies and so forth in place, uh, which all key management levels are aware of, um, how to react when something like this happens in any country. Um, but thirdly, you know, having watched, and this question was about China, so having watched what's happened to China in the last two or three years, um, or if you want to, you can go right back to the beginning of Xi Jinping's rule as the Communist Party leader, beginning in late 2012, early 2013. Having seen all that and where China is now with it, I seriously question whether any international company should send anybody into China at all uh, until there is an overall improvement in the political situation. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I've traveled overseas to 22, 23 countries. And, and all of this was for business. So I think the only country where I had to report in every day was Mexico. I never, I've never had to travel to China, but I'm looking at the China travel advisory now issued by the US State Department. And the rating is level three, reconsider travel. And it says reconsider travel to the People's Republic of China, including the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region and the Macau SAR due to arbitrary enforcement of local laws and COVID-19 related restrictions. It then says, see specific risk and conditions in each jurisdiction below, exercise increased caution in the PRC due to wrongful detentions. So the travel advisory says there's a risk of wrongful detentions. Should corporations be sending employees to work in China in the first place if there is a, if there is a risk stated by the government? And if so, can they can employees that are forced to travel to China hold their corporations liable if something happens? Well, um, it's clear from the travel advice from various governments, but also from just reading the newspapers, uh, it's clear that China is no longer safe for international business people. Uh, it's clear that nobody is safe in China at the moment, uh, and it's clear that no company should really be sending anybody there. Um, one thing that's been happening is more and more employees of companies have been refusing to go to China or asking to leave China. Uh, this has happened on a pretty large scale over the last year or two, um, and I think that's the right direction to go until things improve drastically in China. Um, I agree with you. People need to keep themselves informed. You'd be surprised the number of people that travel abroad and don't read the travel advisories issued by their own government. Now, Peter, you're a former journalist. There was decent media coverage when you were held in China. And the media has a huge part to play in raising awareness of hostage cases like yours. And that directly benefits you. It keeps you protected. What can journalists and news outlets do to help? 
Well, I think that, that journalists and news outlets can do a lot. I mean, we've, we've discussed how important uh, the media was in the case of Nazanin and in the case of uh, the two Michaels who were detained in China. Um, it was important in my case as well. Uh, so I think that is really important. And they need to hold themselves up to high standards. You know, when journalists operate in those countries, they're under some pressure to um, do things that they might not do if they were sitting in London writing stories about something happening in Britain. You know, we have very high standards, for example, on the rules of reporting on on legal cases, uh, on, on litigation or on criminal prosecutions. There are certain rules, you know, and, and you've got to be very careful, careful in your reporting not to incriminate um, a, a detainee um, and in, in the case of a place like China, I would say not to simply accept uh, allegations at face value, um, including, I must say, including the judgment from a Chinese court, because none of this would survive scrutiny in a legal system in the UK or in the United States. None of these cases would survive scrutiny. They would all get kicked out. Um, so it's a bad thing if you've got journalists just simply reporting a verdict as though, well, that must be right then, that must be true. And there were a few instances of Western media reporters doing that uh, with my case. Fortunately, uh, most of them didn't. Um, but they've got to hold themselves up to the same high standards that they would have uh, back home when they report about these things. And um, one of the things that I did after my release was to focus on all the media coverage, because I hadn't seen most of it, right, um, until I got out. And so I and my wife did a huge amount of research, harvesting as much of the media coverage that, as we could find. And, and that was an enormous volu volume of, of uh, reportage and articles, which we went through. Um, and that included um, looking at how our two forced televised confessions were reported. And sadly, you know, there were some Western media outlets that reported this as though we were confessing. They neglected the fact that there's all these vertical steel bars behind me. You know, I'm an, actually in a cage, uh, you know. Um, they didn't challenge uh, enough um, the truthfulness, veracity, and uh, ethical uh, um, eth 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 ethical uh, level of these uh, forced broadcasts, which Chinese television colluded in with the police there to create and then broadcast around the world. So as we dug into the media, uh, we found this stuff and we looked at these clips. We hadn't seen what they had done with these broadcasts until we got out. And we were very upset. And so I found um, an NGO to partner with um, to, to dig into this whole issue of forced confessions in China. And we began a campaign in which I presented a complaint to the British um, television services regulator, an organization called Ofcom, um, whose remit is to basically license, administer, and police um, uh, conformity with the broadcasting law in this country. So 
I presented a complaint in great detail about these two forced confession broadcasts which China had perpetrated on me and my wife and which they had then broadcast in my country. And we were able to, it took, it, it took Ofcom two years, two and a half years to reach a, a ruling on, on this complaint, this case. Um, this was the rare instance of an individual somewhere in the world taking a legal action against a Chinese Communist Party agency, in this case, their television outlets, um, and winning it, never mind yeah, presenting it, but also winning it. Um, we, I did win it, uh, and um, there was a fine eventually imposed on CTTN, one of the two state uh, TV outlets that were involved. Um, and uh, at the same time, while Ofcom was considering this complaint, I worked together with the families of other victims of forced confession to um, submit further similar complaints on their own cases. Uh, this included um, the family of Gui Minhai, a well-known Swedish publisher who is a prisoner in China, uh, some other publishers from Hong Kong who had been detained and forced to confess on TV. Um, it included Simon Chung, who was a worker at the British consulate in Hong Kong, who was basically dragged across the border into mainland China um, and then forced to confess to using prostitutes. Um, uh, it was... Um, an interesting campaign. So we had a series of these complaints. Most of them were upheld, resulting in fines. And at the same time, I worked with this NGO to um, investigate the history of the ownership and control of CGTN, uh, because we, we realized that um, according to broadcasting law in the UK, a television uh, broadcaster cannot be licensed to broadcast here if it is owned and controlled by a political party. Um, and we, we just knew that this was, you know, this was a no brainer. It had to be a winner, uh, if we complained about it, but we had to present this with you know, a credible uh, report, which was basically a bit like some of the investigations I once conducted for my clients in China, um, where we probed into the history of an organization. We looked at its ownership and previous ownership and its restructurings and so forth. And we looked at Chinese policy uh, documents and so forth. And we were able to prove uh, with our report that uh, CGTM was, in fact, owned and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. As a result, um, in early 2021, its UK broadcasting license was removed, um, causing great anger uh, in Beijing. Uh, they retaliated by uh, ostensibly um, preventing the BBC to broadcast inside China. Um, however, um, the BBC had never even been allowed to broadcast inside China except uh, inside international hotels. Um, but so this was this was a major uh, accomplishment for the people involved to see the license of CGTN stripped away. In some ways, perhaps is more symbolic than anything else um, because how many people watch CGTN, for example, here in the UK. But it was actually more than symbolic because uh, they were planning to use London as a new hub uh, for broadcasting to the whole of Europe. So this license loss caused major disruptions to those plans. And I think that uh, uh, 
it was a reminder that journalism has to be legal and ethic, ethical wherever it is practiced. And in China, it certainly isn't. And these organizations thought that they could just behave that way in my country. And they can't. It's that simple. They can't. It's also a reminder that you know, journalists reporting on things going on in China surrounding a detention need to be very, very careful um, how they choose their words. I agree. And spoken like a former journalist. Um, what can the public do to help? I think individual members of the public don't have a huge role to play, except that when there is a case like this, um, you know, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in China, whether it's in the Middle East, uh, where, wherever it may be, um, when there is a case getting into the news, they need, to, they need the public should show support because. It could be them, you know, one day it could be them traveling in a foreign country and they could get into this situation. So we need to support all victims of arbitrary detention or hostage taking. We need to, we need to support them. And that could mean joining a campaign. It could be joining a, a petition. It could mean joining a, a protest outside an embassy. Uh, all of those things are valid in a free country. And we should all show our support to these victims. Peter, we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? I think you've bled me dry, you know, um, on, uh, <laughs> uh, and I've spoken far more than I should have done. Um, but I just, I, I'm very grateful for the fact that you personally have set up this uh, podcast and bulletin that you're producing and uh, you're helping to spread awareness about this problem and to focus attention on many of the most egregious cases um, and just please keep up this good work. And I, I hope that everybody who watches your podcasts uh, will tell 10 of their friends that they should watch it too. I absolutely agree. Uh, that's good advice. Please do recommend this to 10 of your friends. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, you're welcome. It's an honor to help. It's uh, just like you said, helping other prisoners and, and their loved ones gives you purpose. It's very rewarding. It's the same thing for us as well. Peter, as I said at the beginning, we're glad that you're now free and back home and the same goes for your wife. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. Thank you for giving your time and for showing these families that they're not alone, that there are good caring people out there willing to stand by their side and help in any way possible. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. Um, this is sort of a basic um, rule of thumb that is true for all campaigning. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our fortnightly newsletter called The Hostage Briefing. It's the best way to keep up to date with the cases we're working on, as well as new episodes. You can subscribe to this newsletter using the link in the description of this podcast episode that you're currently listening to. Thanks again, and take care.